This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here with Terry South and Jeff Simpson. The gang is gathered and uh, doing what we can to make sense of this mass shooting, the largest Uh, The deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, more than 400 people hurt, 50-plus dead. Uh, One shooter, apparently, Mandalay Bay, out of the Mandalay Bay Casino in Las Vegas, shooting down at a festival, um, a music festival, a country western music festival, and uh, just created chaos. People were trampled as well. 22,000 people gathered for the festival and uh, minute by minute, just getting more and more information, and I'm sure you're getting it from all your news sources. Um, it is now, boy, uh, 50 plus dead. Um, ten rifles apparently found in his room. At least, they say. At least ten. With, boy, when you listen to the sound, the audio of it, he went through a lot of ammunition, a lot of yeah. ammo. And as you mentioned, three rounds until people realized what was going on. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm sure a couple realized, but to get 22,000 people moving, it took, you know, time. Apparently, he went on for 10 minutes. Do you feel like you would recognize the sound of a gunshot if it went off? Well, I, I think I would, but maybe not from that distance. Yeah, it's the distance that was probably an issue. Because then it almost sounds like, hey, all of a somebody's letting off fire. It was, it was, yeah. it was right at the end. That was the last, uh, you know, Band. concert act for the night and... People probably just thought fireworks were going to start happening. Because so. I've, been, I've been in my home before where I could have sworn we heard a gunshot go off. And you, you never see anything on the news or hear anything yeah. about it, and so you just forget about it. But there have been times where it's like, ah, I'm pretty sure that was a gunshot. Man, that would be scary. I've never – yeah, I've never had a gun go off near me. We're I mean, probably like, just like more – near me at home. Yeah. We're probably just more paranoid than you are. Yeah, probably. It's a, it's a tragedy. And anyway, you look at it and then you wonder what's going to happen is everyone's going to take sides. You know, uh, some are already stating that um, gun stocks are up after Las Vegas shooting. So what happens. Um, and, you know, a rush to buy guns, a rush to hold your guns, an argument about whether we should have guns, automatic weapons. We'll get into all of that just as we have with Sandy Hook and every other mass shooting. Um, and then what? Nothing happens. Just move on. And, you know, a lot of these people, I'm sure, will tell themselves, I'm not the type of guy that would go out and do this. And yet the little that we know about this guy so far is that the the worst he had on his record was a ticket, right? Ticket so far. I think that's all they knew up to then. He was from Mesquite, Nevada, which is about an hour drive or so from Las Vegas. And, uh, you know. He also – there was a woman involved. We'll let Terry get to those headlines. What's going on, Terry, that we should be paying attention to? So uh, what? Clark County Sheriff Joseph Lombardo identified the gunman who opened fire at the Outdoor Music Festival in Las Vegas as Stephen Paddock from uh, Mesquite, Nevada. Or at least he had a home there. Uh, he has a – they're calling her a partner. So that could be whatever the relation – whatever the relationship was. But they, I believe, spoken with her. They don't believe she's part of it, but uh, apparently he used some form of her identification to uh, access the hotel. Hmm. So that's how she got involved, is that maybe he used a credit card or something from her. Um, So 50 people killed and 400 plus were sent to the hospital, whether 
they were injured by gunfire or by a stampede of people trying to get out of the area. Yeah, trapped 400 in there. people in the hospitals down there in Las Vegas. Uh, again, shooting from Mandalay Bay Resort Hotel on the 32nd floor, which is across the street from this uh, venue, from this uh, country festival that was going on. Uh, the police, uh, when they broke into the room, they used some explosives and breached the room. Uh, uh, Paddock was dead by what they feel was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He had been in the hotel since September 28th, had at least 10 rifles in the room with him. Authorities zeroed in on him uh, because the guns, as he was shooting them, all the smoke from the guns lit off all the fire alarms in the room. So oh, they wow. Just, they just went right to the room because that's where all the fire alarms were. Yeah, and you you wonder if many people are in their rooms in Vegas at 11 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night. Right. Maybe the guy, I mean, it, guns are loud. Right. So anybody on the floor above or below have would have heard this. Called something, yeah. But yeah, they but said fire alarms, huh? Specifically because of the fire alarms, because the smoke coming off the weapons. Amazing. Caused a problem. One local off-duty sheriff died. Two others who were on duty were wounded by the gunfire. Uh, two of the wounded... One is listed as stable after surgery. The other sustained minor injuries. It is the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. It's the 338th shooting in 2017 in which four people were either killed or injured, which is the measurement for a mass shooting. Wow. At what number? 338th. Since? In this 2017 year. And there has to be at least four. Four you said. either killed or injured in the shooting. Wow. That's when they classify uh, it as a mass shooting. Yeah. I, th- I think we have a problem. That is crazy. That's yeah. one a day. And that's just from yeah. guns. That doesn't even count all the people being mowed down by cars, right? Or any other wow. way. That, yeah. So Oof. President Trump will speak at 1030 Eastern this morning, coming up here in this hour. Uh, President Trump said on Sunday he told uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson that he is wasting his time by engaging in direct talks with North Korea. I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State... Wasting time negotiating with little rocket man, as Trump wrote on Twitter. Oh, boy. little. He goes, save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. Trump tweets come just a day after Tillerson and acknowledged for the first time that Washington is in direct contact with the rogue nation after its missile tests. They have back channel going on just like we did with Iran. Uh, Some people are speculating this is a good cop, bad cop approach to this situation. Uh, Well, hold on. Trump's being the bad cop. Uh, yeah, and they think maybe this might not be the best way to approach someone who wants to fire well, missiles at you. You and I were talking a while ago about the fact that they don't even – some people – North Korea apparently doesn't know how to take the president. Right. So they've been contacting past officials like saying, what's wrong with your leader? <laughs> yeah, there's all these consultants in D.C. like, hey, could you work with us? And they're like, yeah, you know, I want to – I don't want to get involved, get in involved with you, so <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, President Trump took aim at storm batter Puerto Rico in a series of Saturday morning over the weekend. Sunday also tweets claiming the leaders of the U.S. territory appealing for help, want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort. Um, he called them ingrates, I believe. Yeah, he called them ingrates, which hmm. is a wonderful way to approach a uh, hurricane relief situation. Mayor Carmen. Uh, Cruz said Friday she slammed the White House for its inefficiency. She said it's killing Puerto Ricans. Mm. And apparently they've uh, stepped up their efforts with uh, there's more power that's on, more people are getting water. But I was reading this morning, now people are waking up and it's like, okay, do I stand in a 12-hour line for gas, for food, or for water? Uh-huh. And you got to pick the line because uh. that's pretty much the only thing you're going to be able to do today. Yeah. So which one do you pick? Which one's the most important? Food, water, or gas? So you can maybe... Send a family member to each, maybe? Maybe. You know, divide and conquer? Who knows? 
Unbelievable. That's where they're at at the moment. Wow. And finally, on a lighter note. Hold on, but this is Puerto Rico, right? Yes. They're they're a U.S. territory. They are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just checking. But they're an island, middle of the ocean. In a very big, big Big ocean ocean. with lots of (laughs) waves. Now, I needed your opinion on this, Matt. Yeah. According to the latest data from YouGov.com. Yeah. Which is a website where you go in and you just click yes or no, basically, and they give you numbers. But it's kind of revealing. Most Americans find themselves attractive but say they're not overly concerned with the opinions of others about their looks. Okay. So I think I'm attractive, but I don't care what you think about my looks. Well, because if you want to know, I think you're attractive. 53% of respondents regard themselves as at least somewhat attractive or more. Only 10% find themselves very attractive. I'm hot. And the same amount find themselves not attractive at all. So 10% say yeah. I'm, I'm really good. Others say not so much. And everyone else is kind of in the middle going, yeah, I'm all right. I think yeah. mirror sales are up this year, too. Are they now? Yeah. I, We're in love with ourselves. But this is normal, right? We always tend to overshoot... We're yeah. very, we're very um, confident about our abilities to do a lot of things, hmm. including, I guess, our looks. Total of fifty-six percent cared little or none at all about whether others found them physically attractive. What percent? Fifty-six percent. Bull. They care very little. I don't believe that. Nobody cares. That's Sweatpants sales are also up. That's a lie. <laughs> okay. Unless that's just the men. I didn't didn't have any sort of separation as to the genders as to who said what. So. Do you believe that 50% of the men don't care at all? Do you walk around, like, go to a shopping mall and look around at who's there and what they're wearing? Yeah. I think there's a lot of people there's who don't a lot, care. Yeah, there's a lot of peacocks, I think, that care. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people that care, and there's a lot of people that you look at it and, like, did you look in a mirror before you walked out What the happens door? is you reach my age, and then you realize, you know what? Nobody cares mm. who you are or what you look I like. I think at some point, you're just, you're who you are. You know, you've got yeah. the people in your life impressing every other person out there. It doesn't seem to be a, something you want to achieve. My wife yeah. frequently talks about the women that she sees at Target that are just dressed to the nines. Oh, They're yeah. there with their kids. And it confuses her. Like, why? Why are you, well, why are you going you through go all somewhere. this effort You're to go to Target? <laughs> Who are you trying to impress? Yeah. No, I noticed that this weekend. My son and I had a really good conversation about... Do you have to shower every day? Mm. It's a good question. How old's your son? Twenty-two. Okay, I'm talking to my six-year-old about this kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. And Go ahead. but it's like it's I'm not trying to impress anybody. And then I'm like, well, no, there's just basic hygiene. Yeah, this isn't impressing. Would be cologne. And yeah, I mean, I'm not even talking. Exotic you can still hair wear gels. your wrinkled clothes, yeah. but. He's like, I'm just going to stay in. It doesn't matter. Now that I have your uh, you know, permission, I'm going to start doing that. No, no, no. The wrinkled clothes? You can wear the wrinkled clothes. Yeah. But shower. There is a hygiene approach where you don't use soaps. Yeah. You don't use shampoos. And you kind of refrain from showering for a while. And it's said that after maybe a week of you know touch and go on whether the rest of society can be around you, your body sort of adapts and it just goes back to normal, and then the chemicals that we're using now is actually altering our what should be our natural state. Can't we just adapt? <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> our natural caveman uh, funk. Yeah, it's kind of. I think it's a caveman approach to. No, hygiene. I think that's. A, I mean, yeah, for sure. Maybe the the deodorants, the the, the lotions, the shampoos have altered our natural state. Tro- totally. Our body reacts with the odors that it emits, yeah. and after a while. Our pH and all that resets itself when we go back to just being normal. You don't need all that. But, okay, your natural state would also – your pH would be normal. 
but you'd also be alone. That's natural. Apparently, well, the, some the, this won't be the the the, the uh, case for everyone, but some people just don't stink after a while. No, that's not true. You sure? Oh yeah. Okay. No, they we, always stink. They just like can't your, smell your, it. Your anymore. hair's natural oils will just take no. take over, and your hair will not be all greasy and gross. No, I mean, like you until you built a cocoon, yeah. I don't of know. Grease and build up. I've heard some talk. No, you don't think this is true? No, have you? Well, have you been around somebody that? No. Why would I do that? Yeah. No. They. I mean, they. Do, do you understand the the risk to the olfactory senses you're oh, yeah. taking just to be around a person like that? You yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Don't believe that old myth that. All right. You know, you'll, you'll outgrow your stink. See, this would be another interesting study. You've had the study about whether or not people find themselves attractive. Do people like the way that they smell? Mm. What percentage of us like the way we smell? Or, I don't know that you can smell Or do we yourself. more just a reaction of everyone else, and if they don't say anything, then they think I'm okay? Is that how we go through life? I think I'm okay. Well, I think if we all like the way we smell, then we wouldn't use all these chemicals. See, it's interesting because a lot of people can't smell what they smell like, and yet it takes somebody else to tell them, you stink, Yeah, right? You, yeah. And yet we're our harshest, harshest critics when it comes to, like, the way we sound on the phone or oh, yeah. the way we look in a photo. Or the way, yeah, the way you look in video or, yeah. That'd be another interesting one. People that are satisfied with the way that they sound over the telephone. Bah. See, and back in, like, say this... 15th, 16th century, they didn't bathe. No. They used perfumes. Mm-hmm. They covered up whatever the, the problem areas putting, were. Well, it's like that's that's where Axe body spray was invented. There you go. Not true, but understand the point. So you, you're, you're <laughs> trying to cover things up, but people didn't bathe. Yeah. It was more of a luxury to take a bath. Well, you used to rub dirt on it. Right. Well, now we bathe and cover it up. Yeah. Overkill. But so, you know why? It goes back to your first point. Because we care. We care what people think. Yes. We're losing a lot less babies, too, because we're not throwing the babies out with the bathwater. There's a point. I don't know if it was a good one, but it's a point. <laughs> well, but we're actually probably – we're taking more baths than we used to. So we're probably we – You think be, so? We should yeah. be losing more babies yeah. in that reasoning. No, because the water is cleaner. We're not using the oh, whole we family we in the same bath. In the bath. Yes. Yeah. We, we've That's been straining our bath water to catch these babies. So what you're saying, Matt, is we need to take less baths. No. Bathe less. No. Advice from Matt Townsend. Keep bathing the same amount. Does it count as a bath if I soak it up in the hot tub? No. You're lounging at that point. But there are chemicals that are at play that I are know, at work here. But we've already talked about that a few weeks ago, and about 10% <laughs> of those chemicals didn't come from... Your hot tub <laughs> supply store. Ten <laughs> percent were donated by neighborhood kids. Yeah, and seniors. There you go. I mean, people of all ages. Blah. <sighs> Let's get to a happier note. Uh, our next guest is going to be talking about an accident. He went through a really traumatic accident, a life-threatening ski accident, and he survived. So he's going to give us. A crash course in positivity. And it probably couldn't be coming at a better time as we're trying to get through understanding how one person can go shoot at at 22,000 people killing 50 um, in Las Vegas. That's straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking positivity. 
After a life-threatening ski incident uh, accident, doctors weren't sure if our next guest uh, was going to survive. Stephen H. Lawton is his name, but because of his attitude and a helmet and a message from God and a rubber chicken named Henrietta, Lawton not only survived but recovered nearly completely and lives to share his tale and wonders and the wonders and, and beautiful benefits of positivity. Steve Lawton, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Matt, for having me. It's great to be here. You bet. And you're the author of the book, Head First, A Crash Course in Positivity. Man, when I went to your website and saw that uh, video of, well, your picture of you after the accident holding a rubber chicken, I thought, (laughs) what is going on? Maybe, Steve, uh, you obviously, maybe you didn't fully know you were given a chicken um, at that time. But talk about positivity. We we sure need it today with the tragedy uh, in Las Vegas. And it's hard to take these difficult times and turn them positive. It really is. And, you know, that so that chicken. Let me just start with the with the chicken. Yeah, get to the chicken. <laughs> um, so the chick. I received the chicken four days um, after I had uh, that uh, skiing accident where I skied headfirst into a tree, and um, really, by all accounts, uh, I should have died from all of the injuries that I suffered from that. Uh, and I I do credit, um, among other things, um, you know, the doctors. Um, but I do credit my attitude and a message from, from God uh, saving my life. Hmm. Now, the chicken was a bonus. Um, <laughs> that was a it gift. Was a friend, it, it was a gift. A friend of mine, um, and I don't know who thinks of this, but this friend of mine, as soon as she heard about my accident and knew it was life-threatening injuries, her first thought was, Steve needs uh, Henrietta, Steve needs my rubber chicken. <laughs> and so she put her in a box and mailed her to me. And when my wife took her out of the box, she honks, and she took her out of the box. Um, she honked, and, and it was kind of behind me, so I couldn't see what was going on. I just heard this loud honk. <laughs> what on earth are you doing? And she comes around the corner of the bed holding the chicken with a smile on her face, and she's reading the note that says, This is Henrietta, the good luck chicken. And she's brought us luck for years, and she's here to help you through this. And I'm staring at my wife, looking at this rubber chicken, going, Okay. I guess I need a rubber chicken. <laughs> I do remember it, but I was—I tell you, I was not in the mood for a rubber chicken. Oh, I can't imagine. You looked miserable. But I mean, it was. Uh, <laughs> it, but it, the the message of the chicken is is part of an important one with positivity because I didn't realize it until much later as I looked back on the situation that that chicken actually really did play a role in my recovery because she changed the mood of my ICU room. Hmm. We displayed her prominently in the room, and everyone who walked in after that, with like a doctor or nurse, would walk in. They just stop in their tracks and look at Henry and go, <laughs> well, "You have a giant rubber chicken in your room," and we'd have a chuckle and and introduce Henrietta. They'd go squeeze her, and then they'd get on about their business. But that um, but does it change became, it, doesn't it? It? Changed, it changed the whole mood of the room. Everyone, who, it wasn't just a place of misery and suffering anymore. It was a place where you still, even in that that dire situation where we, I was still hanging on by a thread, you could still break that tension with a little bit of laughter and a little bit of positivity. And, and it was kind of one of the, one of the first, first lessons. And it was really the first time that I saw my wife, uh, you know, smile and laugh just a little bit. Yeah. And I think that was enormously important for her kind of keeping her, her sanity and her keeping it all together. As well. well, and especially too, because 
you didn't have the energy or the wherewithal or the ability yourself to be funny. So to have something that could be that could do it for you, I mean, that really is a blessing. And that probably is something we all ought to be looking for, you know, in life is in these crazy moments, just something that that lightens the mood a bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's one of the it's actually one of the chapters in, in my book that covers eight different things that you can do to to be more positive. It's like injecting laughter or humor into um the situations in your life. And what it does is it really just gives you a break from the tension or what's bothering you, um, and allows you to kind of break that 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 thought process that's kind of got a hold of you, take a step back and then come back into uh, looking at that situation potentially with with a new set of eyes or a new perspective. So it really does help um, when you're when you're dealing with something uh, traumatic or or difficult or a challenge in your life to just break that tension momentarily. um, And it it makes a difference. And what's interesting is it was your friend, right? Um, Yeah. Your friend probably had this prompting or this thought that, hey, he needs Henrietta, which, by the way, Nobody knew of Henrietta probably until she no. sends him to you. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea what Henrietta was. That's great. <laughs> it really and is. It's, uh, it's, it also it's, shows you the the role that you anybody can play in you know making that difference yeah. for somebody that's going through such a difficult time. Yeah, that is one of the one of the other kind of key messages here is you really have no idea uh, the effect that you have on other people um, based on what you say and do. Um, both positive and negative. You don't know what's <clears throat> what the other person you're talking to or engaging with, what their story is or what's going on in their mind or what happened <clears throat> that morning for them or that, that week. And, and the little things that you say can have profound impacts uh, on, on their lives. Mm. And when you, if you can take the opportunity to do it purposefully um, and like, you know, one of the things uh like the motto that I live my my life by, and I've done it since before the accident, is everyone who comes in contact with me will be better off as a result. That's great. And that's it just makes my life easier to live. If ever I'm in a challenging situation or I don't know what to do, I kind of I find myself going back to that, and it clears the path for me and tells me what I can do. And so no matter who I'm dealing with or what's going on, um, I try to live by that that motto. And I, I say it uh, every morning. And what's the exact motto again? Whoever I come with? Yeah, anyone who comes in contact with me will be better off as a result. That's great. And again, with uh, what's going on with this tragedy in Las Vegas and, and tragedy in Puerto Rico and, and tragedy yeah. in Houston. Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, your message is so – it resonates so well. Stephen H. Lawton is joining us. He's the author of the book Head First, A Crash Course in Positivity. He's talking about how a, a, a crash while skiing, uh, which apparently was head first, um, and then a rubber chicken Henrietta – and a, and really an, an inspiring message from God, which we'd love to hear as well. Um, all yeah. of these things combined in helping you understand and go through a crash course in positivity. Yeah. So I'll talk um, about the message from God and the role that played um, in my in my recovery. Please. So that happened on it was on day seven of my recovery, and on <clears throat> day six, so I had collapsed both lungs. So I had a breathing tube in. Uh, that was breathing for me. And on day six, uh, my lungs had healed enough that they could remove the breathing tube. 
and the doctors and nurses were telling me that um, my recovery, continued recovery of my lungs was now dependent on me. It was no longer a machine, and I would have to do these breathing exercises that they wanted me to do. And the breathing exercises were um, taking a big deep breaths, five or six deep breaths with a device called the spirometer that measured how much air you took into your lungs, and take those deep breaths uh, and Every time I did that, my lungs would expand, my chest would expand, and I had broken ribs, oh, broken sternum, bruises, six broken, yeah, six broken vertebrae. I mean, so it was just a, taking a deep breath hurt a lot, and so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, my lungs have healed great on their own. I don't need to do these painful <laughs> breathing exercises to get better. I'm just going to let my lungs continue to heal. And it was uh, the next day, day seven that I heard this message from God while I'm laying in the ICU bed. And what I heard was, Steve, if you want to live and see your kids again, you need your lungs. And if you want your lungs, you're going to have to fight for them. And then it was gone. And I just laid there and knew exactly what it meant. It meant I had to do those breathing exercises. And so from that point forward, you could say, since it was a message from God, I did it religiously. But every hour that the doctors told me to go do it, to do those breathing oh. exercises, I would do it, and I would do them as deeply uh, as I as I could. And what happened every time I did those breathing exercises, it not only hurt when you're doing just the taking the deep breaths, um, but about a minute later, what would happen is those deep breaths would loosen up some of the blood that was in the bottom of my lungs, and I would have like you have a bad cough. Oh, then you start I would coughing. Have a violent coughing fit. It's an uncontrollable violent coughing fit and cough up whatever was in the bottom of my lungs. And shake everything ever, that's broken. Yeah. Oh, do you ever cough to the bruised rib, coughing with three broken ribs, a broken sternum, a broken back? Oh. Every muscle that you're coughing with is attached to something broken, and it was by far the most painful thing that I ever did. And I knew every time I did those exercises, within a minute, I was going to have one of those coughing fits. And I did it. Um, I did it every hour. My wife says I did it more frequently than that. Now, the reason why I say that saved my life was two days later, day nine, um, my lungs had healed enough that um, I was almost completely off of the supplemental oxygen. Uh, and they were talking about moving me the next day to the rehab wing. They were just amazed at how quickly I was recovering and how fast my lungs were recovering. And that was when I started experiencing uh, shortness of breath. And I had a complication that they discovered later that day of uh, a bilateral pulmonary embolism. Oh boy! Which is where your clot. blood and your lungs starts to clot, and it's a it's a complication or disease that'll kill you very quickly if not diagnosed and treated properly. And I'm convinced that if I hadn't done those breathing exercises and expanded my lung capacity over those prior two days, that the doctors wouldn't have had time to um, to diagnose and and oh yeah, you you wouldn't have recovered. I wouldn't have made it. Yeah, it would have killed me. And so. Um, that's why I say with conviction that, that, you know, God saved my life with that message, and it was my attitude that enabled me to to have the grit and the determination to do what I needed to, um, because the, you know, the, the failure was not an option. I was going to live, and I was going to see my kids again. My how how many was, kids do you have, Steve? I I have two kids. Uh, they're both in college age right now. They were uh, seventeen and sixteen at the time of the, or I'm sorry, seventeen and fifteen at the time of the accident. And, and they could have lost their dad. They could have lost their dad. We were on a spring break ski trip uh, together in Breckenridge, Colorado. Mm. And so they 
they came and visited me. Um, my wife had some tough decisions to make. You know, she, she's uh, an incredible woman, and her story is um, is far worse. Her job was far worse than mine. Yeah. She didn't have the pain. Yeah, you had, had morphine. Yeah, I had morphine. <laughs> they didn't give her morphine. She had to she, just take she, it straight. And then she's also a reason why I'm alive. I, was, I barely survived. Were, were you this positive so before, Steve? Not sorry to interrupt. Were you this positive yeah. before? Honestly, I have to say, uh, maybe not as positive as I am today, but I was always a very positive, optimistic person. And I believe that that saved my life. Um, having that attitude where when I had this accident, um, I I find it strange now when I look back on it, but it never never occurred to me that I wouldn't recover. Hmm. And it was the first questions um, that I asked when I woke up um, and the doctors, I woke up the next day, the doctors had been telling my wife that because of my um, brain injury, I had bleeding between the skull and the brain, bleeding throughout the brain. I had a severe head injury and I also had starved oxygen, starved my brain of oxygen on the helicopter ride from Breckenridge to Denver because my lungs and heart weren't working. Oh, wow. And they told her that they weren't sure if I would ever wake up. And if I did wake up, if I would be all there. And so uh, she, um, the next day when I woke up um, and I couldn't talk because I had the breathing tube and I started making a uh, motion to write and they scrambled around the room to go get uh, a clipboard and a pen. And I wrote three questions. I wrote, where am I? And my wife responded with, well, you're in the hospital in Denver. And I said, what happened? And she said, uh, well, you, you had a skiing accident. You ran into a tree. And I said, my third question was, when can I go home? And I look like I do in that picture. Yeah, you looked, like a, you looked horrible. It was bad. And, and I mean that in the best way possible, but you look horrible. But I mean, that, that shows you. And the funny thing is you didn't know any of that. And your wife has to look at you knowing how far yeah. you've got to go. Um, and then I guess you slowly regained your awareness yeah. and, and started figuring out you got a big hole to get out of. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I realize now why they don't put mirrors in ICU rooms. <laughs> that's why I see myself. <laughs> uh, man, it's okay, it's a great story, Steve. Let's take a break. Come back. I want you to take us through. I know you have um, a couple of, of really interesting things like the Amen Run. I want to hear about that and the four principles of positivity and how to develop them. I think we all need it in this world that seems to be collapsing around us, uh, massive, you know, um, shootings and uh, hurricanes, disasters, death, all the things that go on in life, tragedies, um, but we still can approach them with positivity as well. And we have a wonderful guest talking about uh, his crash course in positivity. We'll continue this journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, we are joined on the phone by uh, Stephen H. Lawton, who is the author of the book Head First, A Crash Course in Positivity, where he talks about a life-threatening ski accident um, that he experienced a few years ago and, and really how he was able to eventually, through positivity, through also a, a rubber 
chicken named Henrietta, and a helmet and a message from God. They all combined along with his positivity and support from his wife and kids to to really motivate him to get back and to have a virtually a full recovery. Steve, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your message. You're welcome. Thank you again. It's great to be with you and sharing it. You bet. What was the, what was the Amen Run? So the Amen Run, we found out much later um, that the actual run, ski run that I was on, where I had the accident, was named the Amen Run. <laughs> really? It was, it was a groomed black diamond run under the sixth chair in Breckenridge, Colorado. If any of your skier listeners ski in Breckenridge, they yeah. know where that is. The Amen Run, which is funny yeah. because they some of those runs have pretty scary names. Yeah. So I guess you should always choose the run with the, the more religious name. <laughs> Maybe. Amen. We thought, that, we thought that was that was uh, we just couldn't believe that that was the name of the run. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, that's that's the thing about positivity, though, right? Because once once you've got it, you you start inferring into everything something positive. Right. You start seeing positive things inside of of every challenge that you have. Uh, and it's just that kind of shifting that mindset, what I talk about, changing that mindset from my, why me to what now? And going from instead of feeling sorry for yourself, um, moving to what, what can I do or what are we going to do to help um, resolve this situation? And, you know, it's, 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 you know, none of us like going through these challenges or hard times. Um, but it's after you get through those challenges and you're looking back on them, or if you look back now on many of the challenges that you've had up in your life uh, leading up to this moment, each of those challenges has been in some way formative for you and helped you build the skills or the, or the resiliency that you need to, to take you and, and make you as capable as you are today. So it's usually in these challenges when we're learning the most. Hmm. Yeah, and we want we so want to avoid them, don't we? Yes, we really do. And they, you're not in many of these challenges. You're not going to feel positive in the moment. And I can tell you, I wasn't thinking when I was laid on the hospital bed that I had to be positive. Yeah, no. It was just a part of that. It was because like I had always been positive. That was my my um, my nature. positivity offset is what the psychologists call it. As I studied more and more about this after the accident, I learned that there is a lot of um, psychology around the positive mindset. Um, you know, I started studying it when I got home um, from the hospital and I had a severe brain injury and I wanted to know, was I going to recover? That was the one thing that I was most concerned about. So I started studying about the brain and I learned a, a couple things that um, became very powerful part of my message. First was that um, the positive attitude makes a huge difference in the results of a situation you're in. And there's a lot of science now that actually proves this. They've done it with uh, uh, school students. Um, uh, there's a lot of, like a Dr. Amy Cuddy, a Harvard professor, yeah. studied, studied it um, and did it and proved it with a positive mindset and job interviews. So over and over again, they have pro- science has proven that a positive, confident mindset leads to um, better results. And so that was kind of the first thing I was super lucky to have brought a positive mindset to that situation. And I just had that goal. I'm going to recover 100%. What do I need to do now to get there? And so that that really helped to save me. Yeah. And the second thing I, I learned was that um, it was, I, I was super thrilled about it because of the brain injury was this concept of neuroplasticity. 
um, that our brains are constantly rewiring themselves based on what we think and what we do. And so all I had to do to recover from my brain injury, and I had a, a deficits with memory recall and task switching speed. Those are the two areas um, of my cognitive function that were um, uh, that I had problems with. So all I had to do to recover that was basically practice it over and over again. I do memory tests and do task switching tests, the things to work those muscles, so to speak, in my brain. And my brain was able to slowly, over time, rebuild those neuron connections through neuroplasticity. And that's important for people with brain injuries, and it's important for everybody in everyday life um, that you can, and there's science behind this as well, they've studied um, the positivity offset and people that practice positivity um, have a, a stronger positivity circuits uh, in their brain. They've done it by studying people that keep gratitude journals and they looked at MRIs of the brain before and after and showed a change in the structure of the brain after just seven days of a positivity of a gratitude journal. And that neuroplasticity, those neuron connections were still there 30 days later. Hmm. So it's just like working out at the gym, um, but it's, I, I call it attitude fitness. It's fitness for your, for your attitude, for your positivity. Man, that's beautiful. So, it also helps. Was, I mean, that neuroplasticity also says that you can change habits, right? You can yeah. change long, long-standing yeah. habits just by by continual repetition. Right. You just have to practice it. You have, with focused, positive, purposeful effort, and you do it over time. It doesn't happen instantly. It happens a little bit every day, but over time, you'll notice a difference in your attitude and your. Um, positivity and how you approach situations, um, it, it, it's, it's, an, it's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I was thrilled when I, when I read about it and learned about it, not only because I had that brain injury, but how important it, a part of that message is about my lessons of, of positivity, um, that there's, there's basically three of them. It's like your, pos- your attitude controls or has an influence on the results that you get in everyday situations. The second thing is, you can change your attitude through neuroplasticity by just simply working on it and practicing it. Uh, and the next time you're in a difficult or challenging situation, you are going to be more likely to just naturally approach that challenge or that situation with a positive attitude and come out of it on the other side, learning a lot more than you would have and recovering a lot faster than you would have otherwise. And then the third message is just the things that you can do, practical things you can do to be more positive. Give us, give us one of those. We have about a minute left. What would be like the one most important one we can do today? The one most important one we can do today, I would say, is recognizing someone or giving someone a compliment, a specific compliment or recognition to someone else that you know, that you work with, that you see, um, that has done something. You say, man, Matt, I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview with you. You have brought out my story and made it real and powerful. And I want to thank you um, for your skill in, in doing that. It means a lot to me to share my story. And I want to thank you for, for doing that. Mm. Now, I hope you get a boost. You yeah. should be getting a boost of your positivity um, and your attitude just from that compliment. And I really do mean that. No, absolutely. I get a boost from it um, because the giver and the receiver both get a big boost. And everybody who witnesses that also gets a boost. Um, not to the same extent as you and I, but they get a, a little bit of a boost. So if all of us could just go recognize someone um, and do it in a heartfelt manner and express specifically what they did, what it meant to you or the effect that it had on the situation, um, you can affect 
the people around you, and maybe we could start to change this world a little bit at a time. So, so true. Stephen H. Lawton, thank you so much for your time. Everybody, go check out the book, Head First, A Crash Course in Positivity. And uh, just go to the website, too, stevehlawton.com, stevehlawton.com, where you can watch the videos of his miraculous recovery. And let's take these to heart and see if we can't lift the world and make it a better place, as Stephen just suggested. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome to her house. She is looking about Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Vouse is in the house, and uh, that can only mean one thing. It's time for a mind bender. McKenna likes to come in and and twist our minds. Today she's going to help us focus more. That is indeed what I'm going to be helping you with. Yes, because it's like you've got a world where everybody's vying for your attention, kids, technology, media, all these things. They all want your focus. And I only have so much to go around. Yeah, me too. I feel like there's just always so many things that you can be focusing on. It gets difficult and you need a little extra boost. Yeah, to get totally. What, so what should we? what do we need to know? Okay, so I have got uh, several different tips yeah. that can help. And a lot of them are not the kinds that you'd be thinking. A lot of times you think, okay, I need to buckle down. Yeah. Get rid of distractions. And a lot of these sort of show that that is exactly the opposite of what you actually want to be doing. Really? Science says there's other ways to focus? Yeah. So one of the best ways is to start by just taking some time to zone out. Oh, yeah. Studies show that we spend about 50% of our time daydreaming in some form or another. And if it's accidental daydreaming, that's the kind that is going to get in the way of your productivity. Yeah. But if you're allowing yourself, like consciously make that decision, okay, I'm going to allow myself to sort of zone out here, it can really be good for creativity, can sort of free up mind space and can let you then come back to your work that's and cool. keep moving yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So take a little break, allow yourself to really zone out. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as long as you're not operating heavy machinery. Exactly. But we yeah. can do this at work, right? Well, I thought you were. Huh? <laughs> anyway yeah so, so some other good ones are finding a way to give your, let yourself have a good laugh funny cat videos are actually really beneficial they did a study <laughs> where they had some people watch a relaxing video uh-huh. and some people watch a funny cat video and then had them try and work on this like impossible puzzle and the people who watch the funny cat video always did better getting that bit of laugh makes you sort of have this extra boost to be able to work harder for longer or is it really that cat people are just better at puzzles that's also a possibility okay but i don't you buy that a little because you get a little endorphin push yeah you're happier and i think yeah. when you're happier you're willing to like our last work guest harder. Our, and when you're happier your positivity and your mood changes your reality exactly and i think that's a perfect example that's of great. that um another one is Letting yourself have distractions around you. There's some studies that show our brain sort of has all these different slots yeah. oh, for I have a million, what it can yeah. process. It works. And when all of those are full, then your brain has to really decide that it's going to focus, and that's when that gear clicks in. Okay, there you go. So have a messy desk. Have noise going on in the background. You know, have different things going on, and you might be able to focus better than if everything is clean. And there's nothing going on. Speaking of distraction, I think that means we have one more time for one more, uh, McKenna. What's one more lesson? 
take time to just stop working. Go for a run. Yes. Meditate. Yes. Leave the project. Walk do away. Do something else. Walk away. Come back later. I'm going to do it. Um, I'll see you later. See ya. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'll be back in a bit. McKenna, that's great insight. And really, it really goes counter to what we think, right? Exactly. We're always thinking like control and force. And this is more just saying, let stuff go. Let, let stuff, stuff go. happen. The concentration will come if you... Just let it do it in its own time. Hmm. Maybe don't build it. Just leave it in chaos and it will come. See, that's what McKenna thinks. Great insight. Uh, Let's now turn to do a little empty news, a little headlines for us from our headline, empty news headline um, reporter, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Matt, speaking of being positive, if you and I were to go into realty. Yes. If we're realtors. We, you know, we would want to put a positive spin on things. Some of the less desirable aspects about a home, right? Right. So, for instance, if you were to be showing a small home, you wouldn't say small. Well, how would you describe it? I would have it, um, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Cozy? uh, uh, Square foot challenged. Okay. Or cozy, right? Oh, cozy, cozy. What about noisy? How would you put a positive spin on that? Uh, Noisy, um, active. Active. There you go. Oh, on a house? Yeah. How about dangerous? Dangerous, I would say challenging, full of excitement. <laughs> Exciting. There you go. <laughs> so uh, there's this home in Michigan, There, uh, this real estate agent selling this house that's next to a cemetery. She's promoting it with a sign that says, Quiet Neighbors. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they are. Very quiet neighbors. So, uh, so Shane Broyle says the the message immediately came to mind when he saw the four bedroom house <laughs> yes. in Dewitt, which is in the middle of the state near Lansing. He says his grandparents knew a man who lived next to a cemetery and joked about it. Broyles told the Lansing State Journal that he hadn't previously used humor to market a house, but he says there's not much point to life without some fun, right? The seller, Deborah Perrin, likes uh, the quiet neighbor sign. She says she can guarantee there won't be a new subdivision going up in the cemetery. Interesting. See, that's so great. You'll, you'll, uh, yeah, you'll have views forever. Exactly. And lots of parking. Just putting a positive spin on it, right? Yeah, but it's still a cemetery. Would that bother you? Yeah. You would never have any uh, neighbor disputes? See, it's when you try to put in the new subdivision that you run into problems. Because right. every scary movie involves somebody who built the house on an old cemetery. cemetery. Right. But, so you don't do that. Well, no, but there's the other things, right? There's the grave robbers. There's the kids messing around out there. There's the ghosts. There's the goblins. There's the bloodsuckers. There's the... The dangerous things. Yeah, but, you know, you've heard the old saying, those ghost goblins and bloodsuckers are more afraid of you than you are of them. I've never heard that. Oh. That's good advice, though. Interesting stuff. Great headline. See, folks, life could be worse. You could be trying to sell a house next to a cemetery. Ah, stick with us. Doing what we can on this program to give you a leg up in life, hopefully help you see the good as well. There is a lot of difficult stuff going on today, uh, but also we are lucky to be who we are. So let's continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry South and Jeff Simpson. The gang is gathered together. This is the Matt Townsend Show where we try to give you the latest, the greatest information, whatever we can to give you a leg up in life. Because life ain't easy. And today, of course, uh, no exception, the day after the tragic shooting. um, Really crazy, unbelievable episode yesterday, actually two nights ago in Las Vegas. Uh, And 59, again, 59 people have been killed. And a lot of stories are now coming out about the heroes of the day. And that's one thing I really want to make sure we we focus on are the heroes. We a lot of people are asking why. And this seems to be one of those universal issues that there will never be an answer to. Everyone will immediately reach back in their quiver and grab the issue of uh, their favorite issue to bring up, whether it's gun control or, you know, freedom to have guns or, um, you know, mental health. I mean, there's a million things that are here. And I, I really, truly believe that uh, we say it a million times on the show. I swear we say it all the time. This is an episode where we can get together as a country. Pretty much everybody, I think, really, and we're hearing it from all over the globe, has some feeling and some emotional sense of disbelief about this event. So let's use it. Let's find a way to make make our world better simply because of what's going on. You hear of the long lines uh, in Las Vegas for people trying to give blood, which is so symbolic because there's really very little else they can do. Right. right? What else can you do? <laughs> so we'll be talking uh, about the heroes of um, this tragic event. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South and uh, find out what else we should be paying attention to, Terry. One of the one of the other stories, obviously, with Las Vegas is uh, the guy, the, dude. the shooter. So fifty nine people dead, five hundred twenty seven injured. There's the total at the moment. Who knows if that number moves? Twenty three firearms were f- and a handgun were found in the shooter's hotel. Rifles equipped with scopes. Uh, multiple fire. He used multiple rifles during the attack. So possibly the pause that people heard was him reaching for another weapon. Uh, law enforcement officials confirmed the number of rifles in the suite, along with hundreds of round, rounds of ammunition. Two rifles outfitted with scopes set up on tripods in front of two big windows. Um, AR-15, the, the weapon of, of choice, apparently, in these types of attacks. They were found in amongst the the uh, number of rifles there. The sheriff there in Las Vegas says that the, uh, the shooter brought at least 10 suitcases into the hotel room over a period of time. People were wondering how you get that many firearms through yeah, a, one a by one, big I hotel. Guess. He, yeah. You can break them down into you know separate parts and bring them in in the suitcases. Uh, he fired through the hotel door at security guards at one point, striking one in the leg. The guard is still alive. SWAT teams went in after he fired at the guard. Oh, wow. So you had him shooting through the door plus the fire alarm. So that's Which is, I probably... guess, why it took an hour or more to get him. Uh, police retrieved 19 firearms as well as explosives, um, more rounds of ammunition, and what they're calling electronic devices from his home in Mesquite, Nevada. Oh. So. Uh, electronic device like a laptop? They have no idea. All the, all the police says was electronic devices, and they're investigating what they are. So <laughs> like, we'll a, see. like an electrolysis machine no to remove idea. air? Wow, weird. No, so 42 guns. You're looking at 23 or so in the hotel, in the- 19 at his house, 42 guns. People think, you know, that's a little extreme. Yeah. 
Well, I found this today. 2015 survey by Harvard and Northeastern researchers. It's pretty average for the 7.7 million U.S. gun owners in the country collectively own 130 million guns. Hold on, how many? 7.7 million. Own 130 million guns. Uh Average 16.8 guns per gun owner. Wow. So that's not everybody. Well, I mean, there's a gun for every outfit. You have one in each room of your home. Well, that two. Is... I guess that'd be two for every room in your home. Unbelievable. So just I found the numbers staggering. But again, if if you don't, if you're not into guns, maybe we don't understand that. I don't like know. some people, I mean, I guess you need a handgun. Your wife needs a handgun. Your wife will need a shotgun to go hunting. You'll need a shotgun. Jim Bob will need a shotgun. Billy Bob will need a shotgun. We'll all need shotguns. Need one to go get the paper. Then you need a long rifle. Then you need a. Everyone needs an AR. Do you? I don't know. Really. <laughs> That's, the, that's that's one of the bigger questions is you watch the videos, people are on a street in Las Vegas, yeah. and you hear automatic gunfire. Ugh. That probably shouldn't happen. No, it sounds like Fallujah, right? It sounds like something you'd hear in the middle of a war zone. But, uh, again. Tragic. Where's that going to go? San Juan Mayor Carmen Euling Cruz is not on the, listed on President Trump's schedule of his five-and-a-half-hour visit uh, today. He already took off in Air Force One for Puerto Rico. He's going to visit the uh, island after the uh, two publicly criticized each other. According to the itinerary released Monday evening by the White House, the President and First Lady Melania Trump will travel to San Juan, the capital, to receive a briefing about the relief efforts uh, from uh, Hurricane Maria. Let's see. Trumps are expected to visit individuals impacted by Hurricane Maria. The President is scheduled to meet with the governor of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, for a briefing with senior military personnel, the storm is the most powerful to hit Puerto Rico in nearly a century. 95% of the island's 3.4 million residents are still without power. People in the countryside have limited access to food and fresh water. About 10% of households are expected to have electricity in the next two weeks. Wow. You know, you're, you're the president. You're the most powerful person in the world. Yeah. Don't fight with a mayor. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have people yeah. to do that. Yeah. Like, don't fight with the mayor. Let yeah. everyone else fight with the mayor. Just don't fight with the mayor. You're you're the man. Matt, it's common sense, <laughs> but I'm not sure if it really applies. Now he's not going to go, I guess, to the biggest city. I mean, how do you go to the biggest city? Isn't San Juan the biggest city? Yeah. So you're you're not you're going to go to the biggest city, but you're not going to meet with the number one person in charge of moving all of the FEMA goods. Hmm. Well, he's going to talk to the governor. The governor can talk to the mayor. Oh, okay. See, now we're getting somewhere. Just change the command governor. there. Okay. The CAA has reportedly denied a request by the Senate Judiciary Committee to view some of the agency's information about Russian election interference. Senator Dianne Feinstein told reporters Monday that she and Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley had asked the CIA Director Mike Pompeo last week for access to materials on the agency's investigation into Kremlin interference in the 2016 presidential election. Some of the materials have already been seen by congressional investigators were turned down Feinstein said, before adding that the issue isn't finished. So it seems like there's a uh, conflict between Congress and Hold CIA. Our, our Congress? Yeah. Okay. Trying and our to, CIA? Yeah. They don't want to share information right now. Yeah. And she let us know. Tom Petty. Ah, uh, yeah. This he was passed a... away overnight. CBS News uh, reporter more like, I think it was about noon, maybe four o'clock, something like that, that he had passed. Yeah. He hadn't passed. He hadn't passed. He was on life support. Yeah, and now he has passed. You jump, they jumped the gun. Yeah, but I mean, everyone got it, got out there and got their hope and prayers. And yeah, all, that, all those tweets out of the way. That Tom Petty really helped. So, 
So yeah, Tom Petty dead at age 66. Listened to uh, Free Fallen as I was preparing the news this morning. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, yeah. Is that why, because when I walked up, you were wiping a tear away. I, I was jamming. It was okay. Oh, I thought you were crying. No. Okay. And finally, I'll need the sound here, Jeff. Uh, just go ahead and play the sound. Tell me what this is. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's 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 when Jeff walks in every morning with the squeaky shoes. He's got his squeaky shoes on. This made me laugh. What is that sound? Poor little boy got a rather nasty surprise after accidentally inhaling a whistle from a party horn. No way. The, a video shows the eight-year-old unnamed boy from Argentina was posted by his doctor. It shows him honking every time he <laughs> breathes in. Oh, there he so is. Now, play, that, play that again. Now think it. This is a little boy inhaling. His respiration seemed <laughs> the the video rapid. Was, video was posted on our Twitter feed. His, it made me laugh. The boy's doctor posted the video to raise awareness about the toy safety and the risks children are exposed to. Um, he just looks completely <laughs> exasperated. Yeah, like, what do you do? Because they're like, okay, do it again. He's all, <sighs> okay. <laughs> Honk. Mm. So thankfully they were able to remove that. He doesn't continue to make that sound. I did check multiple places trying to find out, is this fake? Yeah, is it? No. I could not, not find no, but anything. You can see just, that happening. So, so if anyone sees anything different, just put it, just let us know on Twitter. But it's still quite funny. The video's funny. The kid's just sitting there, has this look of like, man, again? Because you know they've been having him do that for the last hour. Oh, yeah. Come do on. Again. Can you, you do it again? You never swallowed a, a horn before? little squeaker toy? No. I once swallowed a maraca. Oh. But Ooh. I actually couldn't breathe, so they had to do CPR, and the maraca flew out. Is that why there were fiestas all around you? Mm-hmm. That's why, yeah, everyone thought, like, I had some Tic Tacs in my pocket. But nope, it's a maraca. It's, um, it, that is the parent's worst nightmare. Yeah. But, you know, what's great is, like, at least you knew where the toy went, right? <laughs> so it's not like, where's the toy? <laughs> but I would first confirm, make sure everything's okay. Yeah. And do then you, make the kid do it as many times as possible, because that's, that's pretty funny. Well, it's obviously wedged perfectly in oh, his... Right. In his, in his throat. throat. Yeah. So for my kids, you know, they haven't luckily swallowed anything like that. But if you want to know where my five-year-old is, just listen for the singing. If you want to know where my three-year-old is, just listen to the running. Oh, really? She's always running. Is she really? Yep. Maybe she'll be a sprinter. Maybe. Or a felon running from police. How could you tell your kids were nearby? Well, you know what? The last night we had a really magical moment. Uh, we put oh. all of our kids on an app where we can now track everything they do and everywhere they go. Aha. And interestingly, the oldest uh, teenager didn't want to do it. Well, that's not too surprising. He's like, why? Why do we need to? How old is he? 17. Oh, 18, yeah. Almost 18. Why do we need to start tracking now? I mean, like you guys haven't tracked forever. Why track now? Yeah. What do you care now, Dad? I'm just like, well, because, you know, it's just time to know where you are. What else is great is if you want to pay a little money on this app, you can actually see how fast they drive. Mm. You can see if they speed. Ooh, what's the name of the app? Uh, I'll have to tell you. Let me pull it up here. Oh, by the way, Josh just left the house. Childleash.com. So my son. Um, Does it give you a text when they leave? Uh-huh, if oh, I wow. want it to. It's called Life360. Life 360. So now everyone it's in my family lame. is on it, and it has a little map. It's just like go – what is it? Like find Fine. my iPhone, except it's kind of more user-friendly. Yeah. And it's uh, 
So my my does it play a sound so you can find your kid? Yeah. Okay. If I if I want it to, uh, my one son is at middle school. My other two high school kids apparently aren't at school yet. Huh. Maybe their phones are just there. Yeah, I mean, no. you, you have their phones. You I can even them. tell how much, what percentage of See, phone battery is left. For accuracy, you need to tag your children. Seems like it would phones. be pretty easy to <laughs> fool yeah. the system. Just do an ear clip. If I could do it, if I could like do a tag on my kid. Yeah, yeah, but they don't like Why needles. Would, I would pay. Tag. I would pay a friend five bucks. Take my phone to school today so I can sleep in. Would you really? They just tossed it in their backpack. Dad's no wiser. My wife, we, my wife's even, we're tracking her. She's do, at home. Do they equally get to track you? Yeah, and oh, they wow. all know that I'm at BYU Broadcasting. Oh, wow. Or are you? Well, yeah, because I'm on the radio. Oh, yeah. Hmm. They would know that just by <laughs> listening to the show. So uh, that's how I now, so, because my kids never, you know, they never had weird honks or, or rattles or whistles, and they don't run and they don't sing. Really? I mean, a few of them do, but... But now they have a gross invasion of privacy. Well, now what we're doing is— Oh, wait, wait, wait. Who pays for the phones? We do. I do. Yeah, no. Go yeah, ahead. This isn't an invasion of privacy. You're just tracking your property. That's all that is. That's ex- I just want to make sure I don't lose that $700 phone. Not to be rude, but <laughs> right. that's pretty much what matters here. Um, I, 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 anyway, it's going to work great. It's going to work. And now all of a sudden when one son comes home early for— Lunch mm. or is sloughing? What are you doing? I know they're sloughing. Where are you cutting class? Mm-hmm. I'm not dead. I, I'm, in, I'm in English. Mm, mm-hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. You never called it ditching? You call it sloughing? Yeah. Hmm. And maybe that's a Utah term. Maybe. Sloughing. So the only, the only thing that's left is uh, maybe you can get the internal camera on the phone to no, I don't want to track no. all of their... No, you don't want to? No. Okay. No. It just turns on. They look at their phone. Dad, What? What are you doing, Dad? What are you doing? I'm looking at you. Anyway, it's uh, it's a great app, and um, you know, it's just another great way to get your kids used to uh, when they get that ankle bracelet. So, does it have sort of a Find My Phone feature? Yeah. So, if you lose it, you can play a you can, a tone or something. You can find yeah, and you can track it. By the way, have you ever heard of my Find My iPad story? No. This is the greatest day of my life. Well, oh. uh, after all, my children and my wedding, of course. Oh, okay, right. Oh. Yeah. Um, lost my iPad. Mm. Apparently, I left it on top of my car and I drove away. <gasps> and apparently, it fell in the middle of a road. See, I thought that was every parent's nightmare. And you know what's weird about all this all this technology is I never buy it. I kind of get it through speeches that I do and mm. trade and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Come so, on. So Quit I, the bragging. I, I, had Bribes, free, yes. I, I had a free iPad, basically, and it was my brand new baby. Oh. And I was I used to rock it to sleep, mm. cuddle it, put it on my car, drove away, lost it. And I was devastated. And then I went and did a speech, lost it, couldn't – I was so mad. Oh, I was so mad. And uh, we told my son, and my son at the time was like 14. And he's like, well, it has it has track your iPhone or whatever it's called. Yeah. And I'm like, it does? And he's like, yeah, let's just turn that on. And he turned it on, and he said, oh, yeah, it's on I-15 <laughs> heading northbound. <laughs> And I'm like, what? It's in the median. And then we pulled it up on my phone and we tracked my iPad to an area. And then we sent a message to it saying, hey, you found my iPad. Please call me at this number. Not sure if the felon. Right. The theft. The <laughs> felon. I don't know what we're going to. Yeah, it was a theft. He stole it because I didn't know how I lost it exactly. Hmm. 
You, and someone then, found it on the side of the road. They found it in the middle of the road. Oh, in the middle of the road. So is it really a felony or well, is I didn't it know. your fault? I, see, I didn't know. At that point, okay. I'm like, I don't know where it went. Okay. And then he said, oh, yeah, I've got it. I live right by you. Oh. He's in my neighborhood. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. He just walked it over. Which means he goes to my church. Oh. Well, general, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes yeah. to my church building. Sure. You know what? And we found it. And we gave him $25 as a, as a gift, and he wouldn't take it. See, I, I, I wow. use it three, four times a week because my wife misplaces the phone or the iPad. Or Do whatever. you really? Yeah, just in the house. I go, yeah. where's your phone? I don't know. <sighs> Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't beat yourself up too much, you know, because if that was your baby and you left it on the, the hood of your car, huh. how many times have we left oh. our, our actual babies on the hood of Who the car? Who hasn't left a baby? Like, or, or dogs. Uh-huh. Or like left in the stroller at Presidential Costco. Presidential candidates. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone does it. People are so picky today. You make one mistake, leaving your kid in the stroller, and they'll never get over it. And then you'll be in therapy for years. Oh, it's tough, folks. So tough. Uh, we've got a great show coming up. We're going to be talking about um, college admissions. It's, it's getting harder and harder to get into college. Are there ways that we could learn from other, uh, other universities and other educational programs. In China, they have some interesting insight that might actually benefit us here in the United States to make sure everybody can get into the schools they want to. Stick with us. That's straight ahead, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Fall marks the beginning of the college application season for our, our you know, 18-year-olds and those just graduating or about to graduate from high school. Many students get into the college of their choice, and many do not. The reality is that students both in China and in the United States don't get into the universities of their choice because of a broken system. All of these students have the same question. Is there a better way to apply and to make sure everybody gets into the universities they'd like to get into, you know, based on having the right grades, the right uh, scores. Here to speak with us today is Yan Chen, a professor in the School of Information at the University of Michigan. Yan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, it's funny that we we go to China to to learn some best practices for uh, for our students to be able to get into the universities that, that they want. What, what is it that we could learn from uh, the Chinese admission system and, and that, uh, that might help us here in the United States? Uh, China has a very different system compared to the United States. It's called a centralized matching system. So um, each year about 10 million high school graduates take um, an a standardized test together. So it usually happens uh, at the beginning of June. So it's a two-day exam covering about five to six subjects. And based on your exam score, everyone's ranked. Um, and then the uh, each province uses a different algorithm. So you're ranked, let's say, in um, Guangdong province. Um, and let's say if there are 200,000 kids, uh, high school graduates, applying for colleges, then the, uh, the, the computer algorithm runs through the exam scores and your uh, rank order list, how you rank the universities. 
then decide who goes where. Um, so the U.S. system is decentralized in the sense that you, every student applies for a number of colleges and each college makes its own decision. Mm. There, uh, in China, it, it is centralized. And the reason for the centralization, so China used to have uh, a decentralized system as well until the 1950s. And the, the Ministry of Education found that uh, there's a co- there was a coordination problem uh, in the sense that some students, the good students, got admitted into multiple systems, uh, multiple universities, and they can only go to one, whereas some students don't get into any. So, um, and in the fall, you know, some universities found that okay, only half of the students we admitted actually came, or only a quarter. So there was an experimentation where three regional alliances says, why don't we centralize the process uh, so students only have to take one exam and Mm. they go through this one admissions process. Um, It is not as multidimensional as the U.S. system. What's the – because when I look at this, Jan, I look at – and I think – I guess because it isn't so – because it isn't so unified and, and every university has their own way of doing it, I, I guess the problem is, is that there's a lot of other factors that get involved, the politics of it um, and and maybe just kind of some of the randomness where you're saying a more centralized system would allow it to be, you know, kind of you actually get more people that really are trying to get into certain universities into those universities. Uh, yes. So the more decentralized system, such as the one used in China, is more predictable in the sense that if you know your exam score, um, you pretty much know which type of universities you can get into. Um, and after everyone takes the exam, they're also ranked in a city or in a province. Uh, so I know that I'm ranked in the top five percentile or top 10, um, top 30, and then I um, basically apply for universities accordingly because I know the minimum admission score from each of the universities in the past several years. Hmm. So I can extrapolate and predict, you know, what, what, what the minimum admission score is going to be like. I know the quota. I know, um, let's say, Beijing University has 100 positions for my province. Um, and so, so I, can, I can decide how to apply that way. Hmm. It seems like... Um, um, so it oh, is more predictable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the United States, too, I mean, just the, the mere fact that in China, if you can get 10 million students to take a standardized test that takes two days, that, that, and it, that seems incredible, A, but, but in the United States, we have people taking the SAT, the PSAT, the ACT, uh, and it kind of just depends on every university wanting a different standard or a different test. Why do you think it is in the United States we haven't created a standardized, unified approach? Um, I think probably the universities want more autonomy in the admissions process. Um, in the U.S., the universities are not as hierarchical as they are in China. Um, so because of this standardized test, I mean, the downside, the drawback of the standardized test is that you know, in the last year of high school, you basically just prepare for it. 
Um, so my son just went through the college admissions process in the U.S. two years ago, so I saw how it happened. You know, the, the ACT or the SAT, uh, yes, you prepare for it, but it's not all you do. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Let's uh, take a break. But when you think about it, and I'm going through it right now with my kids, I have a son that just, uh, you know, he's got some great leadership experience, and somehow he just made it to be a manager on the dance company, and uh, <laughs> which blew my mind. And But again, in my mind, I think, oh, that's great. That's great leadership experience. And then he helped start a bowling club, and I'm like, that's great. You don't even bowl, but let's, that's great. And, you know, all of these different opportunities – it's just a weird system when you think about it. We it's a ranking process. We we sit down and try to just get our kids, you know, in the in the system, and hopefully that'll make them the greatest person in the world. But there's got to be more to it, folks. And then maybe there's a way that we can do it in a better uh, way that might allow us to get the kids into the schools they want to get into. You know, depending on if they have the grades or not. Um, we'll continue the discussion up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about college admissions and some of the some of the methods that are used in the United States as well as in China and some ideas from China that might actually help us in our American system to make sure that children and our, or the, the teenagers that are trying to get into college that, that meet the requirements for certain universities, that we can get more of them into the universities that they want to get to. Instead of it being a really kind of closed, difficult system, there might be a, way, a better way to do this. And to help walk us through it is uh, Dr. Yan Chen, who is a professor at the University of Michigan um, and is is helping us understand some of the research that she's been doing on academic um, uh, sta- uh, what's it called admission processes. Uh, Yan, thank you so much uh, for being with us. You were talking about, before we lost you, you were talking about the fact that you're going through this process right now with your son who's applying to college. Uh, yes, he actually did the process two years ago. So um, so I, I sort of have fairly recent experience of uh, what's it like here in, in the U.S. Um, and uh, I think in terms of predictability, um, the U.S. system is much less predictable uh, because each university has its own admissions policies, and they're not necessarily transparent. Would, would do you um, think if we do, you, would we get more kids going to university and staying, in, you know, and getting their degrees? Do you think if it was more predictable? Um, yes, I think so because um, then um, each student can decide which, you know, among thousands of universities, which one he or she should apply to and is likely to get in. Yeah. Um, so I think that ideally the counselors should be able to provide that guidance, but uh, um, in, in a typical public school, I think that's actually unrealistic. Yeah. Well, especially because um, all of a sudden you apply to five schools and you have to apply five different ways. I mean, it yes. seems like so. It's so much more complicated. This one wants three essays and 
it's going to weigh everything differently. Um, d- plus, on top of it, as I'm seeing with my kids, there's all of this extracurricular um, activity and and how do those get weighed? And and what do you see going on in China? And it, do they actually allow all these other extracurricular things to move the algorithm of who gets accepted where? So, uh, yes, they are considered only for the exceptional achievements. Um, so you actually get points added to your uh, college admission score. So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, you take six subjects and the full score is 600 points. Um, if you um, if you win a gold medal, let's say in the national you know computer algorithm test contest, then you can get up to ten, sometimes twenty points added, depending on the prestige of mm. the test. Uh, and so, for students who have won, let's say, a national piano contest or an international um, violin contest, uh, these get transferred into scores added to your your college entrance exam scores. So, uh, So again, they are considered, and the rules are very clear, so everyone knows what kind of achievements translate into how many points in the score. And uh, also affirmative actions are also folded into the college entrance exam score. So if you're a member of an ethnic minority, you can get up to 20 points added to your um, exam score. So after all of these extracurricular um, and affirmative action scores are added, you then enter the um, algorithm with your new score. Hmm. Is it... Do you? It just seems like it is so complicated in the United States. Do you see that uh, that we're willing to make changes to this, or is just the autonomy and the desire of each university to kind of have it their own way just too strong? Um, I tend to think that the autonomy of the universities are, are too strong to have a centralized system. Um, although some of the components in the admissions process, such as the SAT or the ACT scores, can be more informative. So, so if they put more weight on the on the standardized test scores, then it's going to be a little closer to uh, the Chinese system and more predictable. Hmm. Uh, right now, we, as parents or 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 high school graduates, we just don't know. Um, you know how much weight each of these components yeah, have. That's it. We um, don't know. The, yeah, we don't know their system. Process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's confusing, um, so, especially if you're applying to four or five colleges. Right, right. So the Common App makes it a little easier, but you know, places like MIT has its own essays. And yeah. So uh, yeah. Um, so, so I, I think it is more unpredictable here, and um, you know, China's not the only country using the centralized admission system. So Germany has uh, a, a college admission system very much like um, the Chinese system, and also in Turkey, um, there's a centralized system. Mm-hmm. What would you? What advice do you give as we wrap this up to you know parents and to those kids that are applying? To increase the likelihood that they can get into the schools in the in the United States using the decentralized system that we have. 
Well, I would say to get more information. Um, so from the university, so when the representatives visit, you know, definitely go make an appointment and talk to them and, uh, and make the best of the campus visit opportunities. Uh, so when you go visit a campus, uh, it would be, you know, you might not get an appointment, but it would be a good, a good idea to make an appointment with the admissions officer for your district, for your region, you know, let's say the admissions officer for the Midwest you know, for the state of Michigan or Utah, um, and uh, have coffee and, and find out what, how are different components weighted in the admissions process in that university and by that admissions officer. And also talk to, you know, uh, friends and friends' friends that you know who have been admitted into that university and talk with them about their application strategies. I think... You know, given that each university has a different strategy, definitely use your social network to get more information. Absolutely. And that uh, network is going to be the thing that may just be the key to getting in, it seems like, to some of these universities. We appreciate you, Dr. Yan Chen. Thank you for your insight into uh, the college acceptance process and uh, what's going on in China. Again, 10 million people taking a standardized test over two days in order to get your ranking to get into college. Thank heavens that, uh, man, I'm done with, I'm so done with school. I can't, it makes my stomach turn thinking about my kids applying. Yeah. Ooh. And it's, you know, it's more difficult than when it was when we were going to school. Oh, yeah. You know, but I shouldn't put myself in your class because you went well, many, 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 yeah, just, many years I had before. More, I had more to prove. I see. You were already, you know, together. You already had the education. You grew up with your brothers. <laughs> I was street smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't have one brother to beat me up. Um, so did you – like I couldn't – in my, when I graduated from high school, I couldn't get into the university I wanted to get into because I wasn't – I didn't have good enough grades. You know, I will admit that I'm one of those students that really didn't think all that far ahead, didn't really take the time to sit down with the counselors, yeah. plan things out ahead of time. Uh, so I I went to a junior college at first. I could have gone to a local university, but I sat down with their counselors, and they couldn't tell me the difference between taking uh, general education classes from their university versus taking them at the junior college. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, huh? I think I'll go to this junior college and pay $11 a credit instead, and I can use those cl- uh, those. Uh, courses will transfer to the to the university I ultimately yeah. want to go to, and you made it happen, which was Brigham Young University. Now, I will say I did not take my junior college experience seriously. Why? Uh, because I was right out of high school. Well, but so does anybody making, take their first year seriously? I don't know. See, again, I didn't plan. Yeah, yeah. And I that was too much power for me to go from. Knowing where you have to be every day at a certain time, if you're not there, you're in trouble, to, eh, if you don't want to go to class, you don't have to. Oh. Not good for me. Yeah, that, yeah, that wasn't good. I, I was in a reverse situation because I didn't know I was going to go to college because nobody in my family, I mean, one of my sisters had, so I didn't know we do that. And then I had a friend, actually a, a, a father from church came and told me, no, dude, you're going to college. Of course you're going to college. Good for him. And I'm like, I am, but I didn't have the grades. So then I went to a 
really small community. It was a university. No, it was a college. And uh, changed my life. It actually got me into public speaking. I realized, man, college is about doing what you like and what you're good at. So that's why it's different than high school. Started getting good grades. And wow. uh, then, you know, the rest is history. That's And then the Matt Townsend show. So <laughs> we've been talking college admissions. Yeah. And I thought I would make some admissions Uh-oh. about college. Okay. So uh, I dropped out of a course, and I'm kind of embarrassed. But I'll admit that I dropped out of my college bowling class. Really? Yeah. Too much pressure? I, I guess so. I'm not sure why. You dropped out. You just but couldn't... this was during my junior college years, or year. Yeah. I, 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 you know what? I wouldn't tell people that. Also, during my junior college year, cheated on a psychology test. How? But I will say it was condoned by the professor. He, he was okay. He could he tell. He could look out uh, among all the students and see that people were cheating, and he would just say, "All right, now be quiet when you're cheating on your tests." He <laughs> he could care less. It was a junior college. Well, but it, it, still, it's you can't cheat. Cheaters never prosper. Grandma said. Yeah, I've got one more. I don't even have anything to admit. Really. No, I had a very boring college life, I guess. So I went to class one day listening to some Queen rocking it out. Yeah, yeah. I get into my class and uh, I hear this music that's being, it's kind of muffled and it's it's starting to disrupt other students. In fact, this one girl stood up and turned around and said, whoever is playing that music needs to stop right now. I can't concentrate. And I was looking around thinking, like, man, why isn't this person getting the, the clue? Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden I hear Fat Bottom Girls oh, start yeah. to play. That's my favorite song. <laughs> and I realize, oh, maybe that's, that's my clean. maybe that's my <laughs> music playing. So I kind of, you know, stealthily turned it off. Not so without stealthy. drawing Everybody around any attention you knew to it me. Was you. Yeah, it was pretty embarrassing. But I was thinking the same thing, man, this is rude. And I was also thinking, mm, this girl might be overreacting a little bit. Is that when they, that's when they kicked you out of JUCO? <laughs> no, this was at BYU, actually. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh. See, I never did that. I never would answer questions until I was in grad school. Really? Yeah, because I was intimidated. Hmm. Then in grad school, I blossomed, turned into a man. I taught here at BYU in, as a, in the master's program of journalism, and I was going to be the next Tom Brokaw. And then for one year straight, I had to talk to everybody about makeup and hair. <laughs> and I then realized, no, I'm just a beautician yeah. because there's more to journalism yeah. than makeup and hair. Come on. I want to make a college admission on my wife's behalf. No, I think you're missing the point. Of admissions. No, I think this is very healthy and it's therapeutic. So I want to get this out. Okay. For your wife. Your For wife. my wife's sake. I took her out on our first date. We had a wonderful time. Surprised. We surprised each other how well of a time we had. Yeah. So I drop her off at her front door. Come to find out later that immediately after I left, she got taken out on another date. That. By a friend of mine. <gasps> 
Ah, oh, that's a sad story. I was not happy about it. No, I don't blame you. Wow. Sorry. Sorry, your wife. But I think we all know how that one ended. <laughs> yep. <sighs> Regret. What? Huh? Who? Anywho, uh, a little college admission for you. The wrong kind of college admissions, but college admissions nonetheless. Up next, we'll be uh, learning ways to reconnect your family from one of our great producers, Leanna Tan. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Nothing better than, uh, you know, a chance to reconnect with your family. Maybe you go to a family reunion. Maybe you just see cousins from your long lost past. Well, our own Leanna Tan had a chance this summer to reconnect with her family and came up with five ways that you can now, anytime you're in the situation, can reconnect to those old family members. Out of all the exotic and foreign places I was able to go this summer and everything I saw and everyone I met, I think probably my favorite part of it all was going to Grandma's house. It may sound surprising, but it was a great way to end the summer festivities. And it was such a drastic difference from the big, bustling city of New York and the hot, chaotic refugee camp to just hop on a long bus ride to the countryside of Vermont and spend time with some family I hadn't ever really taken the time to get to know before. So, after a couple of self-reflecting and memorable weeks, I've come back to tell you five ways to reconnect with your family. Number one, initiate wholesome recreational activities. I feel like my cousins and I were able to bond on a different level when we set to work planting dozens of trees in their old backyard and painting an old trailer. We learned about each other's strengths, weaknesses, and hidden talents while we were at it. And we were able to work as a team. Well, mostly they just saw how pathetic I was with a shovel and helped me dig holes while I avoided the swarms of mosquitoes. But I loved the moments when we all chatted and roasted marshmallows during our bonfire on Grandma's Beach, or when we visited the neighbor's farm and watched them milk cows and feed the chickens, or when we took a sunset bike ride through the fields to the gas station to pick up potatoes and corn for dinner. There's nothing that'll draw you closer to your family than letting them see you sweat and wheeze up a hill on your uncle's old bike. Number two, play games. This is a great one, because you can play games pretty much wherever you are, and it doesn't have to cost money. I learned to play a new card game with my grandma called Cribbage. And it saved us from some lonely times, like when the power went out for five hours. She plays innocent, but my grandma puts up a tough fight. I think I managed to beat her once, though. One of the proudest moments in my life. But you don't have to have cards or a cribbage board to play games with the family. I really enjoyed skipping rocks with my cousins and grandma and playing word games in our car on our drives. Mostly because I like making people guess what I'm thinking about. Number three, eating food. Simple but so powerful. This is probably my favorite way of reconnecting. There is such a power in picking out food, cooking it, and sitting down to eat it together. It's an easy way to gather people and engage in an activity that's fun for everyone. I loved picking out green beans with my grandma in her garden, making cookies with her, eating her classic potato and ham soup, and tailgating with my cousin. In all my endeavors reconnecting with my family, I discovered a lot of Vermont's edible gems, like donuts made out of cider, fresh corn on the cob, maple syrup in its purest form, and size small ice cream cones bigger than the largest cones I saw in all of Manhattan. Number four, be interested in their interests. I learned so many things about my family and opened my mind to new aspects of the world 
just by doing things they love to do. My uncle took me up to the top of the old attic to show me his collection of vintage bicycles. My cousin drove me to his little farm so I could meet the pigs and sheeps and goats he raised. And my grandma invited me to the Methodist church where I sang new hymns and prayed in new ways and met wonderful new people. And while you're learning about other people's interests, you always discover new things. Like we found a toad under a log while we were doing yard work and some gorgeous vintage hats when we stopped in an antique shop. Listening and caring about what others care about expands your horizons and you just might discover something about yourself that you never knew before. Number five, talk. Everybody's talking about it. It's one thing to do fun things with your family and the people around you, but it's the conversations you have while you're at it that make the difference. I felt like I reconnected not only with my grandma, but with my parents and my grandparents and ancestors I hadn't even met before when I spent hours with my grandma just looking through old photo albums and hearing stories. The times I felt the closest with my relatives was during our long conversations on the road, driving and looking at scenery, or chatting on the patio over some hot oatmeal breakfast or cold cucumber sandwiches for lunch. So, I guess after a summer of glitz, glam, and adventuring, I realized that it wasn't the grand buildings or the posh restaurants or the exotic scenery that made the biggest impact. It was the small moments, just chatting and laughing and being with the people that mattered most in my life that really made a difference. Sometimes we go off searching for greatness and purpose and adventure, when really, the greatest fulfillment comes from just connecting and reconnecting with the people in our lives. It's been great reminiscing on an amazing summer, and I hope you all learned a few things these past few months too. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Everybody's talking about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang is gathered to help you get a leg up in life. This is the program where we help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. The way we do it, we give you the latest and greatest research and uh, hopefully try to you know, help you learn. Because life isn't easy, and when we get thrown a curveball like we, we did uh, just yesterday with the Las Vegas shootings, how do you make sense of any of it? Well, you actually, you probably don't. And you'll notice everybody's going to now pick up their favorite stick and start swinging it, whether you're pro-gun or against anti-gun. The reality is there were a lot of heroes made yesterday. And uh, if you I don't know if you heard about it, the off-duty nurse that that, you know, was running for her life and gets a few blocks away and then realizes, hold it. This is what I do. And then she ran back into the mayhem and craziness and then started offering support. Or the two roommates that were there just to go to a country western um, concert and Crystal Goddard was uh, there. um, And um, when Stephen Paddock started shooting, uh, Goddard and her friend Amy McCaslin then are standing by the stage when some guy was shot. They didn't know, a stranger. And they sat there and just held him telling him, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, as the poor man bled out and Mm. died. So heroes were made, and uh, I guess we can look at it a million different ways, but that is what humanity looks like. Humanity is not just uh, the crazy chaos of the shooter and his obvious problems, 
But uh, the real humanity was seen more on the ground as I think hundreds and hundreds of people were, were stepping up and doing what they could to help others through it. And then some also just were doing everything they could to save their life. It doesn't make them any less valuable. They were just trying to stay alive. And it also, I think, taught a lot of us uh, how fragile life is. And maybe some of the things we fight about here on this earth aren't worth the fight. Um, anyway, tragedy and uh, many, many incredible lessons. Um, anyway, a, a husband saving a nurse, protecting uh, or protecting his wife that was a surgeon. He also died. So many stories that uh, we'll be sharing with you throughout the, the three-hour show we've got. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. <laughs> Terry, what's going on? What's the What else should we be paying attention to today? Las Vegas Sheriff Joe Lombardo admitted he was at a loss for how a 64-year-old shooter, Stephen Paddock, could even have been stopped prior to the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history. Uh, that happened on Sunday night. He said in a press conference Monday morning, he goes, I can't get into the mind of a psychopath. He goes, There's, he snuck 10 suitcases into his hotel room over uh, a four-day yeah. period. How many guns tw- total? They're saying 23. Uh, the last report I saw was 23 different rifles. And, and some and a on couple stands with, uh, with scopes, scopes and, I mean, ready to go. And yeah. a hammer to knock out the windows. And if you heard his brother talking, he's like, he he's a real estate yeah. investor and he likes to gamble. That's what I mean. They they, they said he didn't belong to any organizations. He didn't yeah. see his brother as a as a gun enthusi- enthusiast. Yeah, he didn't in any even way. know he had this many guns. And here you have this guy obviously had a problem with somebody. Right. You don't you don't do that if you're happy. Right. I mean, so, yeah. There's issues, isn't there? So there's there's bigger things here, and that's what you find when you look into his computers and see what he was doing and planning, because this took a lot of effort, a lot oh, yeah. of thought. And three days of bringing guns up right. to his room, well, setting everything up. acquiring all those guns, too. Which, by the way, the three days, I guess, correlates with three days of this festival. Yeah. So he knew, apparently, the entire time, apparently even, I don't know, if he asked for the room where he had the room. But I saw where you know, people are asking the, uh, the, the, the company that put on the concert is called Live Nation. It also put on the Ariana Grande concert in France, I think it was. Oh, they had the, really? the attack there. So they're looking at their procedures, but they're like, this has nothing to do with our procedures. We can screen everyone walking into the venue you want, but if a guy gets in a building yeah. across the street, how are we yeah. supposed to stop that? All right. Now, now I guess you just have to have your concert out in the desert. I guess. That's why Burning Man is yeah, out there. Maybe that's a thing. Uh, so, yeah, lots of questions going to continue to be asked in uh, – I don't know if any answers are going to be found. So, New documents turned over to federal investigators revealed two previously unreported contacts between the Trump Organization and associates and Russian leaders during the 2016 campaign. Washington Post reported Monday in one incident, Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal attorney and business associate, exchanged emails with a Russian real estate developer about attending an economic conference in Russia just weeks before the Republican National Convention. Hmm. A uh, Russian billionaire said... Just more contact that goes unreported, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, here's a couple more. Uh, but, you know, uh, and then you, you got, just remember that other one. Oh, and then, and then there was the one with Putin. Ivanka and Jared, they revealed they had yet another email account with hundreds of emails dealing with White House business that they previously didn't disclose there. What At what point do they say, yeah, these are no longer accidents, right? Like, I mean, there's a point. I mean, yeah. you, you get, like, three... So, you know, do do overs. Remember when you'd play games out in the yard? Do over. Okay, right. do over. That no. was a bad. Oh, that pitch. one didn't count. That yeah. didn't count. This had to do with a a, a a Trump Moscow project. They were building. They were trying to build a a hotel or a high rise or something yeah. in Moscow. And so 
the lawyer was trying to get in contact with certain finan- people with financial connections to try to make this deal happen. Yeah. Problem is your guy is running for president of the United States and these things need to be disclosed. And they just kind of held on to that one saying, we've never contacted anyone. And the, right. the lawyer worked for the campaign. He was the guy that went on TV and um, he said, uh, oh, what did he say? You know, he looked at the reporter and goes, says who? It's that guy. Oh. Says who? That guy. That's the guy who's talking with the Russian financiers to try oh. to get a building built during the campaign. You talk to Russians. Says who? Says who? <laughs> the Russians said that. So, Ooh. yeah, it just keeps coming out. Now, is this anything? I no. don't know. But it's like the fourth thing that isn't anything. No, but fifth who, thing. Who, hasn't, who hasn't forgotten a conversation with a Russian? My I've, point exactly. I've forgotten so many conversations I had with Russians. I know. It was different, though. You, by the way, he's got a lot of explaining to do. He does. He lived in Russia for two years. I think we have a spy <laughs> on our hands right <laughs> totally. here. Approximately uh, 145.5 million Equifax customers may have been affected by the company's data breach. 2.5 million more than previously reported. Equifax came out yesterday and said, by the way, remember that number? Add another 2.5 million to that. That's who was affected. Trust us. <laughs> Which... And honestly, if you're listening, there's a good chance you were. The interim CEO uh, directed the, he goes, I advise Sunday that the analyst of the numbers of consumers uh, potentially impacted by the cybersecurity incident has been complete. And I directed that the results be promptly released. So they looked at it, updated their numbers. And that was the interim CEO. The previous CEO is actually going to be uh, testifying before Congress today. Really? As to what they did, why they did it. And... uh, all that good stuff. Well, you know what's great? Congress is on it. So we can it'll all fix. relax. Yeah, it'll fix it. It'll fix it. Yeah. Uh, U.S. officials say the Trump administration is preparing to ask Cuba to reduce the staff of its embassy in Washington, D.C. by 60%. This in re- retaliation for the alleged sonic attack on our diplomats that caused hearing loss, some, some brain damage, well, some so issues of that nature. Th- is that, how is that punitive? Like, how, because... Okay, then we're, we're going to release 60% of ours. Okay. Yeah. Whatever, we, well, whatever we, you got to do. We've pulled our staff Well, yeah, but ours, Cuba. But some of ours were damaged. Yes. Well, like, those were damaged, and they pulled some others, and now we're asking them to take a bunch of theirs out. Oh, we're asking them. Yeah, I thought they were saying of, they would. No, take them out of D.C. Okay. We don't need your people here if you're going to attack our people. Yeah. So that happened. Also, um, going you, back to the old days of Cuba. Have you ever wanted to wear, I don't know... Taco Bell themed clothing. Never. Really? I mean, a wrapper <clears throat> here and there. Really? You want to wear one of those? No, well, just after I ate. Okay. One. Yeah. Okay. Well, apparently Taco Bell in the uh, the clothing uh, store uh, Forever Twenty One, which I know you shop at quite a bit. Yeah, at. just this morning I was yeah. waiting mm-hmm. in line. Mm-hmm. Get your bedazzled jeans or whatever anything they to call feel it. younger. Uh, they're going to start selling Taco Bell themed clothing. Uh, Taco Bell themed clothing line. So you can get your t-shirts, you get your jackets, your hoodies, those Mm. types of things. It says the whole line will feature some of the most beloved fast food chain's finest graphics. Really? Do you you find any graphics at a fast food chain beloved? No. I I love the writing of this. Think of a, a hoodie in pale pink with the Live Moss logo stamped across the front. Now, rather than wearing your heart on your sleeve, you can wear your crunchy taco instead. But then it says underneath it, Taco Bell? Well, right here, you see the person wearing the pink sweater, and that's a little logo. It just oh, says Live and it's Moss. actually got, no. So, I don't know if you I remember. Like the, I like the phrase Live Moss. Right, but this you'll have, like, the Taco Bell, like, like hot sauce no, packet. On no, the, no. Back in oh. March, 
There was this couple that I think she made her dress out of taco or yeah, her wedding wrappers. dress out of Taco Bell wrappers, mm-hmm. and uh, they Hot. had a Taco Bell wedding. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. We have audio from that if you want to play it later too. Do you really? Mm-hmm. Didn't he used to call her the Big Chalupa? <laughs> or better not, Gordita, my little, ch- <laughs> my so, little Gordita. Chief of marketing for Taco Bell says we often think of Taco Bell as the fast fashion of food. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this who, is, oh, who thinks that? This was the chief marketing officer for Taco Bell. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it goes, so when it came to our first ever retail collaboration, we knew our partner had to be the leader in actual fast fashion. Hmm. Okay. To be clear, the company's Las Vegas flagship store has been selling Taco Bell branded items for quite a while now. But now the clothing line will go ma- to the mainstream market. Now here's the tie-in for you, Matt. Okay, yeah, yeah. Get yourself your 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 taco chalupa whatever T-shirt. Yeah, and then you take a picture of it, and then you need to tweet it to, or, or put it on Instagram or whatever to the hashtag F twenty one X Taco Bell. Okay. Okay. Then they they it will personify your love of the brands because you love brands. Oh, I'm a total brand lover. Yeah. The 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 devotees who submit their best photos will get to see their imagery incorporated into the runway show on October 11th in Los Angeles. Runway show. Oh, please. Yeah. So you'll have a fashion show to show off the chalupa line of sweatshirts. <laughs> Do you like my chalupa line? You know this. Uh, <sighs> This is marketing. <laughs> yeah, because bad marketing. They're even actually trying to make you believe you really want to go to a fashion show and model their Chalupa line. Right. No. No? Nobody does. You think that's going too far? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Get a life. Stick with your fast food. You're okay. I mean, I, okay, here's the deal. Hmm. If you want to give me a lifetime supply of Taco Bell food, okay. I'll wear your clothes. All right. Bring me the clothes free. Yeah. Give, give me free food. Yeah, give me a I'll t-shirt. I'll wear your T-shirt all day long. Right. But don't ask me to wear it and pay for it. And come on. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. It, it really... And I love Taco Bell. Don't get me wrong. But this is something Taco Time would never do. Taco Time would never stoop this low. Taco Time is not going to try to get me to wear, <laughs> you know, a T-shirt. I love the, the extent of the marketing. We, we we think that we're a, a fast fashion food a fast food fashion brand whatever they call but it. Yeah, the, just, there are there there might be like because what they're talking about is like downtown Las Vegas where you, you go to the M and M store right. and you go to all of these stores. But when you're in there, you still know you're being marketed to, oh, and sure. you know a bag of M and M's there is going to cost seven dollars more than anywhere else. Exactly. Yeah, but they're different. Not really. They may have your name on it. Mm-hmm. If they're more expensive, nothing. they taste better. Really? You savor the flavor. Hmm. I don't buy it. You don't buy it? Not buying it. Well, you don't buy it, period, but then don't you're buy not it, buying period. it and I'm on not, principle. But there might be certain people that when they go to Vegas, they're like, we've got to go get a taco, mm-hmm. live moss <laughs> <Hoodie-er>, <laughs> t-shirt. T-shirt. Hoodie. Or How much is it, Gladys? $400. Buy it. It's a bar. Take it. We could do that, or we could actually go have lunch at Taco Bell. I'd go do lunch for about a year. Yeah, for four hundred bucks. Again, not to disparage Taco Bell. It's one of my favorites. I'm just not going to wear their apparel. I don't know. I want a hot sauce shirt. You are a hot sauce shirt. That's what I was trying to maybe get you a to hot, say thanks. hot sauce dispensing shirt. That's different. <sighs> wow, what Ooh. would that be? 
Don't ask. So um, one of the things that we like to do on the show is give you some empty news. Empty meaning Matt Townsend news. A lot of people always think we mean like vacuous, nothing in it news. Mainly because you're always using that disclaimer. Yeah. But we're not saying that. We're saying this is empty news. So let's get to our empty news headlines with Jeff Simpson. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Okay, so we do have a couple of creepy clown stories, but I think we'll get to one of them because we also have a big Bigfoot story that we definitely want yeah, to get we want to. Yeah, we want to alert people to Bigfoot. So uh, you're a doctor. Yes, I am, but not that kind of doctor. You help a lot of parents, a lot of children. Yes. So how would you help this parent? Okay. An Ohio man has been charged after chasing his six-year-old daughter around a neighborhood while wearing a clown mask, and another man is charged for firing a gun. So (laughs) he's scaring his six-year-old daughter with a clown mask. Brilliant. Okay. What's he thinking? Police say the girl first jumped into a stranger's car and then ran into a stranger's apartment while screaming that a clown was chasing her in a a Boardman Township on Saturday night. Holy cow. Police say a man in the apartment building came outside and fired a gunshot into the ground. The father (laughs) told police he chased his daughter to discipline her for behavioral issues instead of spanking her. Okay, so he didn't want to strike her. So let's instead have her run out in fear and get in the car with a stranger? Yeah. Or get in, you mean, do everything you're not supposed to do. So what's better, striking your child or striking fear in them? Or, you know, having that father <laughs> never be able to discipline his children again. Yeah. So he's charged with child endangering and inducing panic. Not to mention, he's really making this woman, this young girl, I mean, not like clowns. Yeah. Clowns are so naturally lovable. Uh, and and he's, yet, he's ruining that. And yet that's pretty much... Almost everybody's number one fear is clowns. I know. But it's even worse when it's because parents chase you with a clown costume. Yeah. That, parents. Parents. Scarred for life. Yeah, totally. Anyway, so now on to the Bigfoot story. Okay. I know you love a Yeti, your good Yeti story. Oh, I haven't. I haven't had a good Yeti story for weeks. <laughs> So this is in North Carolina, okay? okay? This woman is making some pretty big claims. Mm. Uh, She is a wife and a mother, and she's home-brewed a spray that she says can attract any Bigfoot within a half a mile. Really? It'll attract Yes. A Bigfoot. I don't know why you would want to attract a Bigfoot, this big monster that could crush you. Is this called Drakkar? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Just checking. So she sells it at $7 a bottle, $7, and it's the environmentally friendly Bigfoot juice that doubles as a bug spray. There oh. you go. So oh, there's okay. some added value yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it repels bugs, but it attracts Bigfoot. Well, I don't know which I'd rather have. It's a good question. A mosquito? Or Bigfoot, you know, (laughs) rubbing on you. That's weird. So she created it at her kitchen table. How do you know it works? She asked, laughing. That's a tough question. I guess I could ask you, how do you know it doesn't work? (laughs) I don't agree with that logic. (laughs) No. Well, how do you know it doesn't work? Well, no, how do you know it does? Well, how would you, why would you think it doesn't? It sounds like something that your kid would say to you. Yeah. 
Well, because it just sounds senseless and dumb, and I don't even know if they've found a Bigfoot. <laughs> of course they have. I have the musk right here. Well, she might have some evidence to prove oh. that it works. She's done some field tests, <laughs> and they include a recent outing by the research group Bigfoot 911. Oh, yeah. In which a Bigfoot sighting was reported. Sure. It happened the first week of August in the woods of McDowell County, and the report made national news. Don't you remember this story? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I think that's enough to say it can attract a Bigfoot, says Webb. To attract... Uh, Hold she, on, did she, use, did she use the musk to she, get Bigfoot into that area? They did field tests. Field tests, Matt. So here's yeah, but what, they, did they do field test in that area where Bigfoot showed up? Is what I'm saying. I mean, because they could say a field test, and then they're anyway. It sounds like it. So she says to attract a Bigfoot, you need a smell that is woodsy enough <laughs> to keep from scaring him off, mm-hmm. but slightly different enough to make him curious and come to investigate. Oh boy, I don't know. I think it's. I think she's I think she's walking into some weird territory. I think this is going to confuse especially people in our audience, you know. It's going to confuse them with that home-brewed spray that that perfume that's marketed toward yetis. Traversing through the boskage, searching for my woodland nymph. Searching, always searching, but never finding. The sight of my knotted mane flowing through the night's breeze cannot return my elusive love. And the call, ever-growing, will never be heard. Translation. I seek the musk that screams for me, that blandishes her toward me. Lefut. Smell. Business organizations especially need good leaders and spend more than $24 billion on leadership development every year. Despite this large amount of spending, many leaders who participate in the programs don't gain the experience they need to make them the best possible leaders. Susan Ashford, a professor at uh, the Stephen M. Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, joins us today on the line to share how to overcome this deficit of leadership. How do you actually create better leaders? Uh, Dr. Susan Ashford, thank you for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. Love talking about leadership. I do too. It's it, to me because leadership is it's everything we do. We can lead in every part of our lives, can't we? Yes, exactly. And uh, leaders come from everywhere. We tend to limit our views about who really can lead in organizations. That's it, because like we think, okay, the senior person should be the leader, the the you know the most educated or the best educated should be the leader. But you're saying you might want to actually choose your leaders a different way. Well, it's not so much choose, but allow people to emerge and encourage people to emerge as leaders. That's a, so. So really, it's about everybody has the ability, and those that are emerging, we need to make it a little easier for them to to get into the into the roles. Right. And some of that is done by the active granting of that identity by people who see something in individuals. So I see leadership potential in you and I encourage that and reinforce it when it happens so that it happens more often. 
That's like mentorship. Yeah. People will lead. That that really seems to be a big uh, role. What what if I'm a mentor and I start to see it emerging in somebody? Um, what what do I what do I do to foster it? What do I do like? Because we could get them in the lead, leadership classes and the programs that companies are buying, but but what would be the most important traits for them to start focusing on? Well, to, to encourage others to lead is really to uh, give over some power to them, give over some control over some part of the work, and invite them to take that on. And as things go well, to reinforce the leadership that you see in them. And pretty soon people will start to take that on as part of their own identity and then want to act based on that identity. Hmm. Is when, when you, when you look at this as a, as an academic, um, are we going about this the right way? Is it, I mean, it seems like a natural approach, right? That we should kind of naturally, always be building up leaders beneath us um, as if I'm the leader of an organization, I should be doing everything I can to mentor those uh, that I work with to, to reach that state. What gets in the way organizationally that might stop us from from really facilitating a good leadership approach? Well, a lot of things. One is uh, people feel threatened by the leadership of others. Um, sometimes people have a, a, a schema about leadership that there can only be one leader in a group. And so if they feel they were the formally appointed leader, that no others should be leading. Um, other people have a more shared schema and are excited when more people lead. Uh, you know, you take on some risk as the formally appointed leader. If you give over some power and control to others, they might not be perfect. They might screw something up, make a mistake, et cetera. So there's a lot of reasons why it happens. It's true. And it's um, – I mean I don't always believe – like sometimes we promote people that have been there longer We like, or we promote somebody that excels in, in one one part of the company – uh, to a leadership position, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be the best leader. It doesn't actually mean that they will lead at all. We tend to think of leadership as a between-person thing. Someone is a leader, someone isn't a leader, when actually it probably is better conceptualized as within-person. Sometimes I lead, sometimes I don't lead. And if you are in a room with executives and you ask, have you ever had a boss who didn't lead? Almost every hand always goes up. Hmm. <laughs> so true. Um, what are some – You, I know you in your research have focused a lot on learning as a, as a really critical part of leadership. Talk about, talk about how learning impacts our leadership. Right. So the research has shown that, that people who attain high positions in organizations often feel they learn the most from the experiences they've had. But if you watch how people go through experiences, they often go through them somewhat mindlessly, uh, more focused on where they're going and where they've been to even be in the experience they're actually having and learning from it. So we've developed a framework of practices that would help people to glean more from their experiences. Um, and it really makes people in the driver's seat of their own leadership development. They can decide to devote effort to it, and they can grow from it. Or they can keep going through their experiences mindlessly and not grow very much. It's really up to them. 
So a mindless being, they're, they're just not present in their day-to-day experiences enough to glean the leadership lessons out of it? Correct. Yeah, we go through a lot of life mindlessly. We eat mindlessly, drive mindlessly. Sometimes we interact mindlessly. And a lot of times we're preoccupied on where we're trying to get to next or something that happened in the past. And so, yes, they miss the learning. I mean, we we encourage people to actually to, to set a goal for an important upcoming experience, a goal for their own learning as well as what they're trying to accomplish in the experience. And and actually focus on that goal while you're going through the experience. Correct. I guess that but ties it back. Huh? That that makes it more mindful. Right. Exactly. I could focus on being more persuasive that if that's something I've identified as a growth area for me while I'm running the task force I was assigned to run. The task force is going to get run, but are you going to learn something about you and um, you in relationship with others or not is really the question. Is this what you call learning mode? Yeah, we call it mindful engagement, being engaged in the experience in a mindful way. You know, and it's a part going in with a goal, uh, training yourself to be more attentive to or explicitly seek feedback um, and reflecting after the experience so that you can synthesize what you learn. Most managers don't do any of that. If you did do that, you will learn more from experience. And you, this really could be a model, and I'm sure this is what you do, is you, you make it a model about – because then everyday experience just makes you better. This is – you learn yeah. through your day-to-day experiences, your day-to-day projects, but you have to be intentional by having a goal, by, by focusing attention on it, by gathering feedback, and then reflecting on what you learned. Right. You stated it exactly. That's what we're hoping to do. And, you know, I'm pretty modest. I just want to get people to identify a large upcoming experience and learn from that. If it became a habit, you could learn a lot from all of your everyday experiences. You're always interacting with people and leadership is a relational sport. And, you know, you there's a lot to learn by their reactions to you, by your reactions to them, et cetera. Is and and then you this becomes leadership because you're leading your own growth. This is a growth cycle, a growth process. You're both leading your own growth, yes. So you're self-leading, but you're learning about something that's related to leadership because leadership and personal effectiveness are not that far apart. Mm-hmm. So I need to be a better listener. I need to be more persuasive. I need to be more approachable. Uh, one blogger wrote about, I need to be less of a perfectionist. You know, if you're, if you're actually getting better at those things, you are getting better at leadership. That's right. And uh, I guess, too, that would actually take the $24 billion that companies are spending and magnify it by Yeah, if you five. spend money, instead of investing in the few that you've identified as potential and sending them off to programs, you could identify you could invest in the many and helping them to learn sort of self strategies for growth and uh, invested in supporting those strategies it's a very different way to spend your money and I think it could have high payoff that's so true and when you also look at it too you um, like every single learning opportunity every single 
investment of anything you've ever done, you'll be able to get more out of. Even, I mean, this I assume would even work in physical development. I mean, exercising better. Go in there with a goal and actually be attentive to learning and seek feedback and then actually reflect. Yeah, I over. think it could help in a lot of different things. Yes. Does um and, and when you go in and is is this what you do, Susan? Though as a researcher, um. Why is it – because these seem like very natural uh, traits or very natural things to do, but there must be some underlining fear or insecurity that makes us not make our learning more formal like this. Um, what stops us from setting a goal in a in a class or a workshop that we're taking or staying focused or even going back and reflecting and holding ourselves accountable? Right. I actually think they're very unnatural acts. Um, You know, a lot of us don't like being in touch with our thoughts and feelings, our inadequacies. So we, you know, we, we pursue a strategy of denial. Um, And so we don't address those things. There's actually been a study on the reflection component. Uh, Psychologists asked people, would you rather spend 15 minutes alone with your thoughts and feelings or shock yourself with a nine volt battery? And the majority of people took the nine volt battery rather than uh, being alone with their thoughts and feelings, sort of reflecting on them. <laughs> yeah. So we we just don't you know we don't like it. We don't like confronting our inadequacies, and so thinking about that as a as a place to grow. You know, and some people don't like it to the extent that they don't feel they have any inadequacies or places to grow, and are shocked when someone finally points it out to them problem with waiting is that people are reluctant to give that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. So you may never know. Is, I mean, it, it seems like as a parent, I could actually, I could really enhance my my children's life, my my family's life, if I could somehow instill in them these ideas of of learning as a universal kind of process of life. Yeah, I think it would be great. I think they would... You know, if you can just imagine the person who going through a, a Ph.D. program or going through um, an MBA program who did that over and over and over again, how much more they would develop than a person who did not. It's, it's really it's a pretty simple set of ideas, but difficult to to enact. Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, Susan, um, as we wrap this up, what would you say is the one thing that we could do uh, today? that would would just immediately get us on the path to better learning and, and better understanding of our situation, of, of the opportunities we have in our day? Well, I suppose it would be to recognize that leadership at its base is always going to be somewhat of an art form. We're never going to have a formula for it. And to commit to the journey of learning and developing it um, it's a wonderful journey, takes you great places. You've got to commit to doing it. Totally. Totally, totally. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Susan Ashford, a professor at the Stephen M. Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Thank you for your great work and insight into leadership. Uh, really, when you think about it, what if it was learnership, right? What if we were able to focus more on our ability to learn um, instead of, you know, just the hierarchical system of are you the leader or who's the leader or who's in charge? 
shouldn't the person in charge be the the most adept at learning and and helping others learn to reach their potential? Interesting insights, folks. We'll continue the journey as we uh, help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives right here on The Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Dr. Matt here. Um, One of the uh, things as we talk about leadership and learning, um, one of my greatest learnings recently in my life has been about discipline. I've always felt like I was not a very disciplined person, Um, which is interesting because you can still accomplish a lot in life even though you don't have a lot of discipline. And uh, I'm going to give you some of the to-dos that I've learned about discipline and, and it really is. It's changed my life, right? So um, one of the first principles I teach about it is we've got to learn to magnify existing discipline rather than trying to generate a new discipline, if that makes sense to you. What I mean by this is everybody has certain gifts. Everybody has certain talents, abilities. And when it, when it comes down to it, for example, one of my great uh, attributes or strengths I, that based on um, an assessment – in fact, let me just tell you where to go do this. If you go to the website AuthenticHappiness.org, AuthenticHappiness.org, you can take an assessment that's called the VIA Character Strengths Assessment. And it will evaluate you on 24 of the top character strengths that uh, – that that you know exist and it comes from years and years of research over thousands and thousands of um of years of of writings about character strength and what they've come up with is basically 24 different character strengths this is all validated academic research about happiness it actually comes from Penn State University so if you go to authentichappiness.org and take the VIA character strengths test it will rank your character strengths from number 1 to number 24 and the research shows that when people are really focused on what they do well their number 1 strength then it actually um makes you happier and so my number one strength is uh, social intelligence. My number two strength is like um, uh, spirituality. A number three strength is a love of learning. Um, number fourth strength is uh, humor. Uh, fifth strength is perspective and wisdom. So I have these different strengths, okay? And I've actually built my entire career around them. And in those areas, I have a lot of discipline. I'm very disciplined at paying attention socially to what's going on in the situation or being able to um, find the perspective and wisdom in something. I can I can see that very quickly. My 24th area of strength is actually self-regulation. So I don't regulate myself very well. And what I found is instead of me trying to go generate more self-regulation, what I could do instead is actually get the benefits of regulating by using my other strengths. For example, when I sit with clients and I start to uh, it's easy for me to get backlogged and 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 start having each client go over about five or ten minutes. But what I found is instead of just being a lot better at regulating myself, what I might want to do instead is just use my strengths of social intelligence. Like what is it like to be the person out there waiting for me for 15 or 20 minutes? And when I actually connect into what I'm already good at, I'm better at regulating myself. So use what you already do really well 
to help you be more disciplined. Does that make sense? But in order to do that, you might want to go find out what your character strengths are. I love it because my kids now, we've gone through this assessment together, and everyone in my family knows what their top five or six strengths are. And the rule then would be we're always going to ask them to use those strengths to to do the things they need to do in their lives. So always start where you already have some success, okay? That's rule number one. Rule number two, choose to focus your firepower. Researchers have found that you only have so much willpower in a day. And it really is a finite resource. And the longer you go in the day and every decision you have to make actually lowers your ability to make the next decision better. Um, And so that's why in the morning you have the ability to get a lot of stuff done maybe. But at the end of the day, you start wearing out. It's called decision fatigue. And many people are suffering from so many decisions in their life that they run out. And by the end of the day, they literally have a harder time getting to the gym at the end of the day. They have a harder time exercising. Um, focus. And so what the one of the a, a great uh, book is called um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon, and he basically talks about a garden hose metaphor where uh, if you if you put your hand on the hose, if you don't put your finger over the end of the hose, you know, you've got like a, a drizzle of water. But the minute you focus it and add a little more pressure, to the end of the hose, you can direct it a little bit easier. So what you might want to do is make sure that you're putting the things that you need to really exercise discipline um, to do, put those earlier in the day and make it so at night, if you, for example, have a tendency to go into the kitchen late at night and start eating, um, one reason that happens is probably because you've run out of willpower. So you'll probably want to create some other way to to focus on it. Sean Acor, in his book, Happiness Advantage, has a rule that he calls the 22nd rule. He teaches that there's a, there's a concept called activation energy. It takes energy to get a project or an activity started, right? It's like momentum. If you want to get something done, in a, you, know, you know, to do a project at your house, it takes energy to get the project started. And the goal would be to always make the energy it takes to get started so easy that you can get it started within 20 seconds. If it takes you longer than 20 seconds to get something started, you're probably not going to do it. Now, by the way, you can take – you could actually take things, activities that you don't want to be doing. Like if you watch too many Netflix shows or whatever, maybe what you ought to do is start making sure that your phone isn't near you. If you leave your phone upstairs in your bedroom and you're down, um, you know, down in the kitchen, you're going to be less likely to go watch the Netflix show because your phone is going to be 20 seconds away. So the goal is very simply minimize your activation energy. Do whatever you can. He gives an example of taking the batteries out of the remote. When he was doing his dissertation, he spent too much time watching TV. So he put the batteries in a completely different part of the house. So every single time he um, needed to use the remote or turn the TV on, he would have to go out to the – or up to his room to get the batteries. It's just a simple idea. So discipline, a lot of times, you don't need to be disciplined to do the entire project. You just need to be disciplined enough to do the first 20 seconds and, and get started on it. And then the last rule about creating more discipline in your life would be rely heavily on routines. Once you've used and, and kind of created a, the easiest path and the pattern and you know what your greatest strengths are and you are able to focus your time and attention, then make it a routine. Make it a habit. 
I know people that have have now had an incredible discipline of knowing where their wallet and their keys are because they simply made one habit of coming home every day and putting their wallet and their keys in the exact same place every single day. Once you've made something a routine, a habit, right, and the habit eventually will change the way your brain is working because of neuroplasticity, they call it. Once you've done the process over and over and over enough, your brain will just kind of do it automatically. Until then, find a way to actually discipline all your focus and your energy on the routine. And once you make the routine, boom, it'll make life a lot easier, right? Now, there's there's a ton of learning behind all of that and three or four books that you can go get, but start doing something today and don't just chalk it up to uh, – life's hard. I'm not going to do that. Discipline we all need, but again, you also already have existing strengths where discipline is already in there. It's already embedded in you. So start – if you're going to start somewhere, start focusing on what you're already good at and use that to help you through the things that you want to work on more. Uh, that's uh, some basics uh, 101 on discipline and developing discipline in our lives. Up next, we'll continue the discussion with some empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time to get uh, back to uh, a little learning, a little life's lesson for you. Earlier, we did a story about a father who was trying to discipline his six-year-old daughter, and he did so in a very ineffective way by chasing her around the neighborhood dressed like a clown, I guess. Dangerous. Maybe a little scarring her, you know, for life. Ruined her for life and ruined a good clown, you know, story for her in the, down the long uh, run. We also wanted to talk about our own, I guess, parenting uh, lessons that our parents taught us. <laughs> sure. Jeff's, Jeff's dad has has some really interesting ways of trying to motivate him. Yeah. So, you know, he was kind of creative like this clown mask wearing guy, but he didn't do anything as dangerous or scarring. He did things that I'll never forget, but I wouldn't say they scarred me. Well... <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit. So uh, today's my dad's birthday, by the way. Oh, happy 70 birthday. years old. What's his name? Paul. Paul Simpson. Yes. From, uh, uh, where is it? Irving? Anaheim. Anaheim. So, yeah, he would, you know, didn't always want to be so harsh in his uh, discipline methods. So he would do things like he would have us stand on our heads and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Like if you did something wrong. Yeah. Okay. He would make us tell nursery rhymes backwards. Uh, He once filmed my sister, who was trying to get out of being grounded, uh, filmed her doing 10 Alibabas to him. Really? Just, you know, basically throwing her hands down and praising him. And uh, he also flipped a coin with her and said, you can get out of being grounded uh, if you win this coin toss. And But he said, double or nothing. So if you lose the coin toss, Ooh. you're grounded for twice the amount of time. Oh, so kind of like it was it was grounding uh, gambling. Yes. Okay. So she lost, and that's <laughs> oh. when then the the ten Alibabas came into play. <laughs> um, he uh, we had this front post that he tied us to one time and sprayed us with those. <laughs> See, it seems harsh. No, but I'm sure every parent has thought about doing something like that. 
Well, like when you're yeah. out spraying the hose, you know you just want to spray your kids with it oh, to get a little frustration out, right? But see, that's what bothers. It's, it's always the dad <laughs> that kind of is a little more aggressive like that, and the moms are like, "Don't, honey, no." Uh, yeah, uh, probably my favorite thing that he did though was my brother and I were misbehaving and arguing and fighting as we did quite a lot of back in our day. He gave us a clipboard that had a paper on it okay. that essentially said something to the effect of. We've been bad, and we're not allowed to eat our dinner or dessert, I can't remember, until we've gone around the neighborhood and gotten 10 signatures. He said after the fact that he didn't think we would actually do it, but we <laughs> – the threat of no dinner? Are you kidding me? Oh, so we man. took that clipboard. We went around the neighborhood. I remember giving it to one of my neighbors in particular who you know read over it and put his signature on it. We got the signatures, went back and got our dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but this actually makes sense because you had some – you guys were a pretty – you know, you were a pretty rough bunch. I was the youngest. So I got the brunt of a lot of my brother's mischief. Yeah. Well, I think Paul did a great job. Look how you turned out. Thank you. And I think that ankle bracelet that you're wearing is – I think it's wonderful. And it will be off in about six months. <sighs> Paul Simpson, happy birthday to you and thank you for disciplining your child. Thanks for being creative too. I mean, even coming up with ideas like tying your tethering your child to a pole, spraying him, you know, having him go around the neighborhood. Things that parents today wouldn't dare do, but you dared to do it. Paul Simpson, you're a great man, a great leader, a great father. And most importantly, you raised one of the most difficult children ever in Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Happy birthday to you, folks. That's uh, hour number two of the program. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.